Airline Pilot Guy, episode 348. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters. Today's show was recorded on the 7th of November, 2018. In today's episode, we have some aviation news, some updates on previous accidents, more news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale in Flanders Fields. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 348 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where, as I just mentioned, we'll talk about news and your feedback. And here to help me with that, from her lakeside studio in South Carolina, a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Great to be back on the show. feel like I missed out a little bit last week, but... uh... For good reason. We'll get into that in a little bit, I'm sure. You did miss out, and we'll find out why here shortly, as you just mentioned. And also joining us from the capital of the world's greatest nation. Wow, I should proofread these before I start the show. Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Well, I don't know who did write that, but it's lovely to hear it said, especially by your voice. Oh, you know what? Anything that's on the script, folks. Literally anything. I actually made that correction because you were in Washington, D.C. on the last show. <laughs> oh, there you go. Ah, uh, shoot. It shoots this sweet just as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know if I can correct that in post, so we'll just have to go with it. And also joining us from his stately southern mansion in Smyrna, Georgia. Barbecue master, motorcycle rider, party boat skipper, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Yay, another show. Looking forward to another great one this evening. Well, if you're in the U.S. and the time we're recording, it's evening, but another fantastic episode of the APG. All right, I'm looking forward to it as well. And there goes your music in the background. Hello, everybody, uh, including uh, the hosts and everybody listening to the show. Thanks for downloading the show on your favorite podcast client software. Or if you happen to be watching us on the uh, video, hello. And uh, it's been another interesting week in aviation news. Can't wait to get to that. Um, But before we do, let's talk about what everybody has been up to. Since the last episode, let's start with Captain, excuse me, Dr. Steph, because she wasn't here for the second half 
of last year's last year's <laughs> last week's episode. <laughs> Second half of last year. She's been gone a half year. It was no, a long wait. sabbatical. <laughs> that was wrong. My, my quads are really sore. I'm wondering why. <laughs> now I just found out why. Apparently I was running for a year and a half and no one told me to stop. Just like uh, Forrest Gump. I know. I just felt like running. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I missed the last half of last week's show or not even half. I think just like no, an hour. Last third. Yeah. yeah. So not not too much. Um, no. I did start listening to what you guys had to say with in my absence and then I only got about 15 minutes into it so more to listen to um anyway yeah I was not here because I was in New York City a wonderful city for the uh gosh was it the 48th I might get that wrong someone will correct me uh, New York City Marathon and it was absolutely fantastic it was could have asked for a better day in New York on Marathon Sunday the days leading up to the marathon and the day after while I was up there absolute Terrible weather, just overcast, gray, windy, rainy, cold-ish. But Sunday, not a cloud in the sky, sunny, 50 degrees, light winds, perfect marathon conditions. Um, you guys were wondering, I did hear you asking, uh, wondering how many marathons I've run this year. That makes four full marathons for the year. Uh, Boston, Hamburg, Chicago, and New York City. So... So do you find that you do better when the weather is not so fantastic? Well, <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, this was my slowest marathon this year. Um, not by a lot. I ran a, a 407 and I didn't really set out with any lofty goals for this one. I just wanted to enjoy New York. It's supposed to be, you know, it's it's a fantastic crowd that comes out. And I was just um, trying to let myself get caught up in in that and really just enjoy the city and enjoy the experience of it and not worry too much about a specific time goal for this one since I had so many other great marathons this year. Um, as it is, as it was, uh, or as it turned out, I should say, um, apparently doing that causes me to run faster than anticipated. And I had my fastest ever half marathon split during a marathon, after which point I promptly fell apart and had difficulty in the last half of the marathon. Oh, you shot the wad at the first part. I then. did, I did. Mm -hmm. Even lost all happens. your energy toward the that end. happens but it yeah. was worth it it was it was great i was just having a good time especially in um you know i'm pretty familiar with uh manhattan but not as familiar with the other five boroughs in new york city so it was great to run all i mean you spend most of the time in brooklyn actually and uh it was great running down fourth avenue there the crowds were just fantastic and i kind of got caught up in all that uh emotion and excitement and was like you know running by high-fiving the kids in the crowd and the adults in the crowd and um just jogging along at what I thought was a nice pace and turned out to be kind of fast. But I noticed you started in Staten Island. Yeah. So the, the race is great. It takes you, for those who aren't familiar, it takes you through all five boroughs in New York City. You start in Staten Island and you're only there just briefly, basically, to start the race. And you begin on the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. So you have the first two miles basically on the bridge. So anyone who's not been to New York City, as you come into New York Harbor from the south, there's this giant bridge that spans across from staten island to the west to brooklyn in the east and it's a very tall very long bridge um so it's the first mile basically up you cross the one mile mark still basically on the top of the bridge and then another almost mile down the other side and then uh spend quite a few miles in um in brooklyn and then you cross over into queens and from there you cross into manhattan on the queensboro bridge which is another very long, very tall bridge with a big incline and then uh, descent on the other side. 
and then you run up um, First Avenue in Manhattan, uh, all the way up into the Bronx, and then you turn around in the Bronx and you come back into Manhattan and finish in Central Park. So it's really a lovely, uh, lovely marathon course. It is hillier than I'm used to, and I'm definitely feeling that today, especially in my quads. <laughs> Actually, yesterday was bad. Today is a little better. Oh, really? Oh, really? Several days after the actual It's event. usually two days after is the worst for me. The day after, I'm usually okay. So I think Nick would attest to that. I think I was doing okay on Monday. Um, we had a little... She was doing marvelously. I was very impressed. She looked like a normal person. <laughs> she looked like me after I'd walked the dogs. Yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> not, know, not usually too bad. It's that I delayed mean, onset muscle soreness that, that kind of gets you. You have to pay with a little muscle soreness, but it's a really good way to get through New York without any traffic. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, they, they open those streets right up for us. Yeah, no traffic. There's only one other time I can think of them shutting down any part of a city for traffic, and that would be when the president's in town. So you're very presidential running the uh, marathon. Hey, I'll take it. I'll take awesome. it. Awesome. And I came in, uh, they sent out the, um, I think the official results today in the- in You came in first? Oh my God, congratulations. I <laughs> came in, um, let me see if I can get this email pulled up quickly. I came in 16,892nd out of 52,697. Wow. So, oh, that's pretty good. I will take that. Um, and actually, it breaks it down even further. I was 756th in my age group out of 3,315. And just for those from the United States, um, I was 7,926 out of 28,313. Wow. So that's that's for, for not a great time for me this year. It was uh, it was yeah. pretty good. Well done. I will take excellent. It. Did, nice job. Did you, see, my, huh? did you I, see? Did you see Acme's CEO, CFO, uh, CEO running through there? No, apparently I ran faster than him. Ah, by quite a bit. She, <laughs> well, you're, she you're, saw you're the banana quite a bit younger, and she beat the big squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was so, uh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to ask if you got to see any people from the community. I did. I did. Um, kindly enough, uh, David Abbey, as well as uh, Tanya and her husband, Philip, they all came out and cheered me on at two points in the course. Um, I think the first time I saw them was around mile 18 in Manhattan. And then they basically, so what happens is you're going north and then you turn around the Bronx and you come back south. So then they went from there over to mile, I think about 23. And I saw Tanya and Philip there and she said, Dave was supposed to be here. I said, okay, I'm not waiting around. So I started, I kept running and then, you know, about yeah, I'll, I'll minute, just sit here for 10 minutes. Like, like my name from behind me and he's like running after me on the course. Who was? Dave? David Abbey, yeah. <laughs> Love it. Um, and then uh, I have to thank Tanya again and Philip for um, afterwards. She was kind enough to let me come to her place, which is very close to the finish of the race, which was wonderful because it was a chance to jump in the shower real quick and, and change. And she had, uh, more than just light refreshments. She had like this whole charcuterie set up with cheese. And uh, I was going to say, I, I know for sure that she had plenty of oh, great cheese. There was plenty of, plenty yeah. of cheese. She's quite the yeah. connoisseur when it comes to that stuff and some nice uh, beverages, some beers and sodas and whatnot. And we sat around and, and chatted for a while after the race, uh, which was really, really nice. So no wonder you quite a little sore because you had some really good recovery liquid to help. Oh, you. yes. Hey, care nothing nothing wrong with a couple of beers after a marathon. <laughs> Carbohydrates. <laughs> um, so we did we did that. And then the next day, I actually got to see Nick. He was in town. He arrived after I finished. 
thank you very much. No, I'm just kidding. Not much he could do about his schedule there, but it was it was wonderful to see him in uh, New York City. And we actually met up also with uh, Radio Roger Stern for brunch. And a very nice brunch it was. And yes. thank you very much, uh, Coffee Bar Fund. Yes. Well, I thought it was the least that I could do since I couldn't be with you all to uh, celebrate well, the marathon and such. appreciated. If yes, only we'd realized we would have gone to the uh, top floor of, um, uh, I don't know, what's that really nice hotel? I have no idea. Don't know. <laughs> I mean, we could have picked a really fancy hotel. place for uh, a yeah, yeah, coffee fund. We though. picked a very nice, but... Uh, uh, you were good stewards. We were uh, coffee fund. It was quite yes. delicious. Though. It, was, it was very good. I think we all had yeah. a burger of some sort. Excellent. And uh, yeah, it was uh, really couldn't have asked for a better, uh, better weekend. Super. We could ask for a better airport to fly in and out of. Oh, man. Wow. We, we all love New York. Oh. Uh, we should fly yeah. home, okay? Uh, yeah, delayed by like almost, I forget now, hour and I, a half. Uh, hours. I, I pushed five minutes early and we only taxied for 12 minutes. So oh, No, we pushed and then we sat for, I don't know how yeah. long. I, I'm not quite sure how it worked. We like jumped the queue of about 10 regionals and I was going, how the hell is this? What, isn't someone going to complain in a minute? But nobody did. I guess size matters at Newark. <laughs> I guess it does. <laughs> yes. Well, even on the way into Newark, we we left Charlotte early, and then of course we had a, a release time that we had to wait for. So we sat on the end of the runway and waited for that, not for very long, but we missed it because of because per the uh, captain of our flight, Charlotte Air Traffic Control mismanaged the uh, inbound uh, aircraft, and we couldn't get out. This is just what the pilot of our flight said. I'm not. Saying anything against air traffic control at Charlotte, who knows? What the anyway. Wadi of the South? What are you talking about? <laughs> Not my words. None of that. Are, none of those things are my words. Anyway, <laughs> and then um, we did quite a bit of holding on the way into the Newark, and to the point where a United flight that left Charlotte after my flight left passed us somehow while we were holding and arrived in Newark before we did. So I thought that was interesting. I would not fly with that captain again. I, I think it was his his fault. So. Yeah. Captain, you it know was who you are. On somebody's list. <laughs> anyway, but uh, no, it was it was fantastic, and uh, it didn't matter. I, I had an uh, upgrade on that flight, so I just ordered another glass of wine. Nice and arrived, nice and relaxed. There we go. Excellent. Yeah. Another glass of wine over here. Wine. <laughs> well, because he asked, the flight attendant did ask if I wanted another glass, like when I thought we were on approach. I said, "No, nah, I'll be, I'll be fine. You know, we're gonna go." You know, probably have a drink or two when I land. And then we just kept holding. And I said, no, you know what? I will take that glass of wine now. <laughs> yeah. Ding. 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 Yeah. Ding. 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 <laughs> Would somebody enough, take care come. of that woman? <laughs> no. that flight, I will say that flight attendant was fantastic. He was uh, exceptional service. All right. So, Nick, you, you mentioned you got you were in New York, but uh, kind of uh, arrived after the the race, the marathon. But you were able to see Steph and Radio Roger. Uh, tell us about that. That's true. I mean, I stuck on about 10 tons of extra fuel and piled the coals on, but we still couldn't get in fast enough. And anyway, I would have had to got get across from uh, uh, the other side of the river. So uh, now we just went to uh, Hooligans. And had uh, beer and nachos. Uh, and um, the next day, a nice uh, uh, get up and uh, wandered across to uh, B&H Photo, uh, the Mecca, the temple uh, of, my, uh, of my religion. And uh, Steph came there and I tried to convert her to my religion. I don't know if I succeeded. She didn't buy anything, so I'm guessing not. 
Well, uh, we should back up and say that. Um, all right. Speaking of blowing your wad on things, money wise, <laughs> I have a little bit of a problem with um, marathon clothing and running related shoes. clothing. Not shoes. Well, I didn't buy any shoes at this expo, but I did spend oh, okay. quite a bit of money on um, New York City marathon gear. I, I justify right. it all because I wear it for for trading purposes for, for future marathons. Gotta have the best. But my, my budget did not allow for any audio visual uh, purchases, equipment purchases on this trip. We know where you're And my, mm-hmm. my suitcase would not have accommodated it, even if I wanted yeah. to. Well, excellent. But I was um, quite impressed. I, I've not been to that store before. It was all that I imagined and more. It's a candy store for people like mm-hmm. Nick and I. Exactly right. So uh, we had a, lo- a lovely lunch, and I was hoping to get together with Yossi, another of our uh, uh, listeners uh, who works for that amazing company BNH, and I have the baseball cap that he gives. He gave me. It sits in my briefcase, and if ever the sun's a bit bright, that's the one I wear on the flight deck. Um, but uh, sadly, I ran out of time. I was feeling a little weary, so I needed to go back and have some sleep before we uh, flew home. So I'll, I'll catch you next time. I'll see if I can. Um, and uh, I am planning to meet up with uh, Radio Roger and watch him work uh, at his Anchorman job um, the next time I'm out, which will be uh, this weekend. So that, I'm really looking forward to that. In addition, I have already mentioned, and I will just mention again, I'll be in Berlin on uh, Tuesday the 27th of this month and uh, hoping to have a meetup at the Circus Brewery. And there it is. Uh, that's the that's the beer map from the Circus Brewery in Berlin in the evening. So if you're kicking around uh, Berlin, nothing better to do, then that's the place to get to. Uh in addition, uh, I'm doing an interview of uh, Sir Roger, uh, Richard Johns uh, in a few days for Plain Talking UK. But more importantly, I'm up at uh, the Royal Aeronautical Society again, this time the Loughborough branch on Tuesday the 20th uh, to give a talk. If you heard my previous talk, it'll be very, very similar. So if you don't want to be bored, then then uh, don't pitch up. But I'm sure they will let visitors come. And if you want to date uh, into the future, uh, March the 25th next year, I'll be talking to the uh, Manchester TAS, which is the Aviation Society is what it stands for, big group of aviation enthusiasts that meet near Manchester Airport. So that's on March the 25th next year. Excellent. All right. Now we're uh, so if you're in the Berlin area and um, the other uh, mentioned places, make sure that you contact Nick. Absolutely, love to see you. And Dana, what have you been up to? I guess we recorded part two on Saturday morning, and uh, so have you been busy doing stuff? Yeah, actually, I promised I was going to put out a uh, crew log and been so busy with other projects that i haven't actually made it to that point so i do apologize to all those listeners i promise i'll still get it out there because there's a couple things i want to discuss amongst us privately and uh other than that not a whole lot set to short call reserve on monday and uh going to nashville this weekend looking forward to that gonna go see the patriots play 
I've actually never seen the Patriots play in a, in a, in live. And anybody doesn't know the Patriots is American football on my team and I've never seen them play live. So it's going to, I'm kind of looking forward to that on Sunday. My that wife, surprises me. Yeah. My, being such a big fan. You know, I, all right. So I have to quantitate that when I was knee high to a grasshopper, my father used to take me to the Patriots games when I was six, seven, eight years old. I don't have very many uh, recollections of that in the old stadium. So I haven't seen the modern version of it. Um, I've been to a couple football games here in Atlanta, but I've never seen uh, the Patriots playing a, uh, 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 a actual season game live. So I'm looking forward to that. Of course, Nashville is uh, full of debauchery, great uh, places to listen to some great music and um, eat some fantastic food and going up with a couple of friends. So we're really looking forward to that this coming weekend. But that's about uh-huh. it. Uh, hopefully the car will be done by the end of this week. Boat's all set. So things are starting to lighten up a little bit. Thank God. Just in time for winter. Excellent. Oh, got to go riding today. So uh, appropriate sounds at the beginning of the show with, with the riding, but aviation related, not a whole lot going on. Okay. I should look for the uh, cricket sound. I know I have that somewhere. Yeah, you that I, just, somewhere. I don't get to use those very often. So that's what you've been doing right there. Flying wise. Pretty much. Yeah. That one trip. Well, hey, me too. Um, Saturday morning when we recorded part two of the last episode, I mentioned that I'd been diagnosed officially with uh, shingles. And uh, I decided to call in sick for my trip. So I would have been on day three of four right now in Savannah, Georgia. But I'm at home at APG headquarters. And uh, I'm glad I did uh, call in sick for this because uh, there were at times where the uh, the pain was kind of strong enough to it would have been a distraction. So I and also. The medication that I'm taking, this antiviral, does say it may cause dizziness and do not operate machinery. Uh, so I'm thinking maybe I should go by that advice. I don't know. But so I stayed home and um, feeling OK. I don't think I'm I'm one of the people that got one of those more severe uh, outbreaks of shingles. It's just uh, it's more of an irritant than anything else. And it makes it hard for me to sleep. Uh, because every time I move, you know, it, it wakes me up. But uh, anyway, I'm uh, I'm hanging in there and uh, should be good to go for my next trip. My next scheduled trip isn't isn't until the end of next week, but I'll probably try to pick up something before then. Um, and tomorrow at the Atlanta Tower, they're uh, having a tour for some Acme or Atlanta based Acme pilots, and uh, I'm one of them. So. I get to go up and check out the tower, and uh, and if there's any questions that any of you have for me to ask them, let me know. Get get them to me as quickly as possible. You'll have to be watching this show live to actually do that, because by the time I actually get this published, it'll be several days after the tour. Oh, oh pick me. Pick me. Yeah. Okay. No. I, I already know what your question is. So, um, yeah. But uh, I hope to have an answer to that as well. Uh Let's see. I'll probably try to do a crew log as well. So those of you who are part of the Coffee Fun Cadre will be able to hear a little bit about my visit up to the tower. But I'm not going to be there with my microphone because I don't think they'll be cool with that. In fact, I know for sure they won't be cool with that. And uh, that's about it for me. So, yeah, but a couple of photographs. 
I might be, if I remember, I'm not very good at that. So I'll try to remember to take some photos up there. And that is it. Now, last show, the very first part of it, and probably almost an hour's worth of it, we talked about the uh, issue that uh, Alex sent in, the feedback that Alex sent in about the about the uh, Muscle Shoals, the Northwest Alabama airport, and the IFR and VFR traffic and everything else. And we're still getting feedback from that, and, uh, and we do appreciate that. Uh, and the only thing I wanted to mention, well, let me play a little bit of that discussion that we had from the last show, and then I'll uh, move forward. The I'm talking about the actual directory? No, we don't have that. They well, don't give that. We don't have that information. You don't have that information at all. That's available to all pilots all the time. We That's not part of our, our publications and our kit. Our, um, Segmented kit. circle. You don't have a sectional either? No. Okay. That was a little, little bit of a clip of that uh, discussion that we had uh, toward the beginning of the last episode. And Steve Andrus uh, wrote to me and said, I finally found info on right-hand traffic at Kilo uh, Charlie Echo Uniform. Uh, Dana referenced this, uh, Clemson University uh, Airport. Uh, on my company-issued iPad, we use JEP Flight Deck Pro. I found it under the pubs tab interesting topic so i he had he also sent a a photo of uh, his efb and all of the various layers you have to go (laughs) to find this information and so i did the same thing because we also at acme use um, the uh, jefferson flight deck pro app and i was able to find it as well but i mean you got to go through i don't know how many five six different layers to find the airport directory in there but it's good to know that we do have that and then you have to find the actual state uh, of the airport that you're looking at i guess it's very similar to the uh, what they used to call the airport facilities directory and now is called the chart supplement and uh, i don't know if we get all of the information that you would in the uh, chart supplement uh, but it's a lot of the same information and sure enough there it is it says runway seven right hand traffic or circuit so um, thank you, Steve, for pointing that out. And uh, but we still don't have sectionals, that for sure, <laughs> right? Right, Dana. We have some, kind of a modified view of things in our map view in the Jefferson Flight Deck Pro, but it's not a sectional view per se. Yeah, it's it's a via, it's not a sectional, but it's kind of a VFR overview. Yeah, and I kind of give you towns, roads, that type of stuff. Maybe some stacks, right. but that's about it. And that's usually what I the mode that I have it in when I'm using it. But um, anyway, so I hope that that will be the end of our discussion regarding <laughs> regarding that. It was uh, I told Alex that uh, he's permanently banned from sending any more feedback in to the airline pilot guy show. <laughs> well, he's just it's used up his allotment for a while. <laughs> his quota. Actually, I did not tell him. I, I, no. I did say that to him. And then I said, just kidding. Uh, it was a great topic great. and it spurred a lot of great discussion. And um, he, he said that um, he also is a tech geek and he found out about our show because he also uh, watches and listens to uh, Leo Laporte and, on his podcasting network. And I guess I need to ta- uh, thank Micah, our main man, Micah for um, introducing Alex to the Airline Pilot Guy show, because every time Micah is on uh, the uh, the Tech Guy podcast, uh, he, he plugs the Airline Pilot Guy show. 
And uh, so I guess uh, Alex checked it out and he said that um, that he uh, finally he had always wanted to get his pilot's license. And after listening to the show, he decided to do it. And uh, nine months later, he is now a, a private pilot or I think he said he is a private pilot working on something else. And um, and he said that or maybe he's going to be soon. I, I need to look up his his uh, feedback that he sent to me. But uh, he said also his wife told him to send the bill for all his training to me. <laughs> so, well, you have to take the, the good. Right, with so, the, yeah. the, I'm not sure we have enough in the coffee fund. Financial. Yeah, I don't, the good. I, I don't yeah. know what I'm trying to say there. But. Coffee fund is not uh, big enough to pay for your training. I'm sorry. But um, anyway, with that, uh, anything else to talk about before we move on to the coffee fund? Not here. I don't think so. All right, let's do it then. All right. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right, the Coffee Fund is your way to uh, be active in our community, not only from just being in the community and sending us feedback, that's all great stuff, but if you have the financial resources, uh, you can be part of the Coffee Fund cadre, and a couple different ways to do that, which we'll talk about at the end of this segment, but since the last episode, a lot of uh, contributions from our people using the Classic Fund and let's see, we had recurring payments from Jason Kuntz, Steve Trumbull, Stephen Abreu, uh, Thomas, no, excuse me, Jeff Moeller, and then uh, individual payments from Mazus Karim. We've had um, contributions from him before. Thank you, sir. And um, Thomas Harris and Anthony Vogt or Vaught. And... Uh, the other way to do this is to become a patron via patreon.com. And we have a new producer, a new patron, and his name is Gordon Cassidy. So welcome, Gordon, and everybody else to the Coffee Fun Cadre. If you want to join everybody in that endeavor, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee, where you'll find out more. Stand by for news. Let's start off with uh, the first item in the news folder, and this is something that occurred, I guess, late last night. Uh, a Sky Lease Cargo Boeing 747-400, registration November 908 Alfa Romeo, performing flight 4854 from Chicago O'Hare to Halifax um, in Canada, and I guess that was Nova Scotia province. With four crew, landed on Halifax's runway 14, 7,700 feet, or if you prefer, 2350 meters, at 5.06 local time. 
but was unable to stop before the end of the runway. They overran the end of the runway, went down a slope and through the localizer antenna and came to a stop about 200 meters past the runway end. There were no injuries. The aircraft received substantial damage. With all gear collapsed, engines number two and number three separated, engines one and four damaged, and creases in the fuselage skin. That sounds to me like that airplane has is totaled. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, you know what it reminds me of, Steph, is mm. the uh, the Falcon 50 crash at Greenville downtown. A little bit, right? Yeah, because it went off the end of the runway, went down a slope and through some antennas and, you know, they uh, stopped before a a uh, uh, an airport uh, perimeter road uh, but uh, they didn't have a giant 747 underneath their cockpit like the, no. these folks did yeah size yeah. does matter for certain things it, yes and you heard it from her um and us let's see the uh canadian tsb have dispatched investigators to the site and uh, in the show notes we'll have a link to this article from Simon and the uh, Aviation Herald, and you see the sad-looking 747 uh, uh, in, in not on a runway, basically. Anyway, sad is a good word for it. Yes, very, very sad. Uh, weather conditions at the time um, didn't look that bad. I think there was a a crosswind, uh, maybe a gusty crosswind to begin with, and then a steady crosswind uh, around the time of their arrival uh, but it doesn't look like anything that was you know super bad maybe some light rain visibility was okay kind of a low ceiling but there was uh, some i mean this is just what i read on uh, social media stuff earlier today but there was some question of was it more of a tailwind or it was crosswind well i think let's see they said runway i think it was the winds were 230 Right. Uh, you, I, you might have swung to a, a couple of knots, a couple of three but nothing, knots. But nothing crazy. No, nothing no it was mostly a crosswind. Okay. Yeah, and it seemed to have been fairly steady during the day. It wasn't like it was varying a great deal. Yeah. So hopefully we'll be able to find out more about what happened there. But uh, there we have that. Not a huge runway for uh, a 74. I don't know how heavy it was, but uh, yeah. Yeah. That's true. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, these incidents of runway overruns are one of the major types of accident we're now getting. And uh, the whole industry is trying so hard to make sure everyone um, takes all the factors into account before they commit themselves. One of the reasons we all, almost all of us, have these very strict, strict stabilized criteria to uh, make ensure that our approaches are well controlled and there's nothing in the approach that's going to lead us to uh, landing deep. Um, and, uh, you know, you thought everyone was in the loop now. So I'm just surprised we've we've had a, a small rash of these lately. Don't well, understand. speaking of, uh, I had it uh, item number three or C in this case. Uh, we're using letters for the news. Let's let's uh, move to that one first and skip B for now, because this is also a major incident that occurred in Russia. Uh, it was an overrun as well. We have some more information now about this uh, this incident, and because the um, Russian regulatory agency or investigatory agency has released their uh, preliminary report. And uh, let's see, I've highlighted a few things here, but I'll start uh, from reading at the beginning on November 6th, uh, just uh, yesterday. 
They reported that the crew had computed their VREF at 147 knots indicated and V approach at 155. The crew prepared for an approach to runway 6. Again, just to kind of remind you, uh, this was a 737-800 UT Air or Ute Air. I'm not sure exactly how we pronounce that. Uh, Russian airline. And they ended up um, uh, going off the end of the runway there at uh, this airport. And I probably deleted that information from Sochi. uh, uh, Yeah. No. Yeah, that's right. That that is Sochi. Right. You're correct. Uh, The crew prepared for an approach to runway six while descending through flight level one one zero. Oh, there it is. Toward Sochi. The crew was informed another aircraft had just gone around on runway six. Uh, RVRs indicated 1,650 and 1,400 meters with winds from 90 degrees at 17 meters per second, gusting to 22 meters per second, which I do not understand. But, oh, here, I do understand this. 33 knots gusting to 43 knots. It was windy. <laughs> That's very high winds. Uh, the crew aborted the approach to runway six and entered a holding pattern. About 10 minutes later, ATC reported that the RVRs on runway two were 1,300, 600, and 2,800 meters. Winds from 350 degrees at four uh, four knots, or excuse me, eight knots gusting to 29. The ILS approach was available for that runway. The crew decided to remain in the holding pattern. The reported conditions were still below their minima. Another three minutes later, ATC reported the conditions for runway six being RVR 3,500, 1,500, and 3,500 meters, winds from 090 degrees at 14, gusting to 37. (laughs) The crew accepted the approach to runway 6. The crew lowered the gear, set the flaps to 15 degrees, and was handed off to tower. Tower cleared the flight to land on runway 6. At that time, the winds were reported 090, 14, gusting 21. Now, here's some information we didn't know about uh, because we all kind of scratched our heads trying to figure out. We knew the weather wasn't great, but uh, now we're going to find out how really bad the weather was. Descending through 1,100 feet, the crew received an oral announcement monitor radar display. The captain asked, what did he say? The first officer replied, a wind shear warning was being predicted. That is part of our uh, predictive wind shear system. Descending through 850 feet, an oral warning occurred. Go around, wind shear ahead. Although the crew was required to comply with a wind shear warning and to go around, the crew continued landing. Descending through 160 feet above the ground, about 800 meters ahead of the runway threshold, the crew received the warning, wind shear, wind shear, wind shear. Now that is not a predictive warning. That's an actual wind shear warning and uh That's a really serious situation. Although the crew was required to immediately go around on receiving this warning, they continued toward landing. Descending through 110 feet, the first officer asked the captain, do you see the runway? At which point the captain initiated a go around. Crew subsequently stated a heavy rainfall was moving in, dramatically reducing visibility. The aircraft began to climb after reaching 50 feet AGL and 150 meters before the runway threshold. So at 110 feet, the first officer says, do you see the runway? And they initiated the go around. And finally, uh, the airplane started to climb at 50 feet. So they were obviously Mm. in a wind shear. Uh, The aircraft climbed to 3,100 feet and entered a holding pattern. ATC told 
the crew, the RVR, RVR for runway six was now 2,500, 2,600, and 2,400. Uh, the crew decided to attempt another approach. After being handed off to tower again, uh, let's see, the, two, the winds were 200 degrees, eight gusting to 16. The crew lowered the gear again, set the flaps to 15 degrees. Tower informed again that the preceding aircraft had chosen to go around. After intercepting the localizer about five nautical miles before the runway threshold, the crew set the flaps to 30 degrees, intercepted the glide slope. Descending through 1,100 feet, the crew again received monitor radar display. Descending through 1,050 feet, the crew received go-around, wind shear ahead. Does this sound familiar? Again, the crew continued the descent, did not go around. Uh, data off the flight Data recorder suggests significant gusts of wind. Auto thrust responded, changing engine N1 between 30 and 90% N1. That's a big change. And descending through 460 feet, the enhanced ground proximity warning system, the EGPWS, sounded wind shear, wind shear, wind shear. The crew again continued the descent. <laughs> again, you're not supposed to do that. Descending through 75 feet, the crew disconnected the autopilot and autothrust indicated airspeed at that point was 169 knots. The speed over the ground was 178 knots. Ouch. At, yeah, very fast. At the time of touchdown, the wind came from 170 degrees at 8 knots. And uh, the RVR was 6,000, 5,000, and 6,000 meters. There was light rain, thunderstorms over the aerodrome, runway braking coefficients 0 0.5, 0 0.5, 0.5. The runway was covered with a layer of water. Uh, three millimeters uh, in depth, coverage about 26 to 50 percent of the runway surface. Following the disconnection of the autopilot and autothrust, the airspeed further increased. The sink rate reduced. The aircraft touched down 1,300 meters past the runway threshold at 160 knots indicated or 170 knots over the ground. And again, we talked about it when we first um, mentioned this this incident, and that was about almost halfway down the runway, I believe. Uh, when they actually touch down following touchdown spoilers deployed auto brakes engaged reverse thrust however was only applied 20.5 seconds after touchdown 2160 meters before the runway end the deceleration reduced the captain applied manual brakes 13 seconds after the auto brakes engaged 26 seconds after the auto brakes engaged the aircraft went past the end of the runway broke through the perimeter fence went into the riverbed a fire occurred in the left engine so, um, wow. Uh, it was not a nice day in Sochi. Uh, thunderstorms. Now, you know, we, we've talked about the predictive wind shear system before. And basically what that is looking at is a system that's in uh, self-contained in the airplane itself that is using data from the radar to see and scan ahead to see if there is any uh, possibility of weather that could produce a wind shear. And uh, so that, uh, as I said, it's a predictive system. So it sees, so what they must have been seeing on their radar must have been pretty frightful. The weather outside is frightful. Because the only time I've actually heard this thing, maybe I've heard it once or twice in real uh, operations, but Dana and I hear this every day when we're doing our checks on uh, the, uh, our pre-flight checks and we run through the uh, predictive wind shear system to make sure that the you know we're getting the oral re alerts and we're seeing the what we're supposed to see on our radar display. But that's really the only time you want to hear these things. And if you do hear these things, especially if it says go around wind shear ahead, the reason why it's saying go around is that you're supposed to go around. 
and not continue to the point where your reactive wind shear system is saying wind shear, wind shear, wind shear. Would you all agree with that? You know, you know, Jeff, when I was reading this, what I did take note of is the pilots, uh, both are very experienced pilots. They have uh, in excess of 10,000 hours, each one of them. I don't remember the specific number. And I'm kind of shocked. I, I, I don't know what other factors were, were, were here other than the fact that, you know, maybe, maybe there was fatigue involved. Maybe they were trying to get in. Uh, I, I, maybe it was a fuel state. You know, they got to the point that they're now running low on fuel and the cabin may have been looking at that and saying, hey, you know, we got to get in. Um, but bottom line is they're very lucky they didn't get slammed into the ground. Um, yes. Very, very lucky. And, and when it says exactly what you said, when it says wind shear head, go, you know, wind shear, wind shear, wind shear, go around, you can always go around, right? And that's, that's exactly right. what they should have done. Uh, and then they forced the landing. And, and then, you know, I did, you know, what talked about is the late uh, reverser application and also the, the spoilers. And, you know, there's all types of things going on here that there was just a comedy of, of the Swiss cheese model that everything was going wrong for him. That was just, I, to me, just looking at this preliminary report. Um, and I think that Nick and uh, Steph, you'd also agree. Well, all of us, I'm sure uh, they, they blew it several different times, um, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. disregarding blatantly disregarding. Yeah, there's no, I policy. Mean, you know, sometimes you can look at things and you can go, well, you know, if I were in that situation, I can think of a reason for why I may have done the same thing in that scenario. I don't think any one of us can think of why we would have done what these guys did. In this they went around twice. And then this is, the, you know, third time's a charm, I guess they're thinking. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, well. uh, but as, as Dana mentioned, you know, fatigue, probably a factor. Uh, yeah. The pressure, you know, we don't know what the fuel state was. They didn't mention it in right. the, at least in this article uh, regarding the preliminary. And that report. was the only thing I could maybe think of was if their fuel was that critical and they could not get to an alternate or if there was not a better suitable alternate yeah and i don't know how remote so she is i mean i haven't looked familiar and i know vaguely where it is but i'm not familiar with other there might have not been a a real good choice within a a close in range that they could have gone and you know how long this thunderstorm last this airport seemed like it was there for a long time yeah Yeah. is this on the it's on the black sea right is it it's on ac one of those big seas yeah well, you know, um, we're sitting here with this great technology. So, well, why don't I just couldn't find out? Yeah, why don't you look up Sochi, uh, Russia? And in the meantime, yeah, I, I happen to agree, Jeff. Uh, th- this should be, though, an instinctive uh, drill when you get a wind shear warning. Something you practice regularly in the simulator. I don't care what your fatigue state is. You should almost be on your personal autopilot when you hear either uh, go around wind shear head or the wind shear, wind shear, wind shear warning because uh, it's too slow, oh, certainly on my airplane, two slightly different go around drills, but they're well drilled, well practiced. It, it's a no messing thing. It's, uh, it's something you don't play around with. The only reason you would ignore warnings like that was if you, as the captain, had decided it was more dangerous to uh, go around than it was to continue with the landing. I, I mean, the only thing I think that speaks against that is that they did go around the first time, even though that was pretty late, you know, but, um, the, after. The, but they did it long after they were supposed Correct. to. That's what I mean. Yeah. You know, they definitely went mm-hmm. through those warnings the first time. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I can't imagine doing the same thing twice and actually having been in it and seeing how bad it is. What on earth makes you want to go back and. Right. You know, the first you're, warning you're doing they the get. Same, the, the same warnings though. You know, if you, so you did it once. Great. You're in the weather. You see how bad it is. You go back, you're getting the same warnings again. Why on earth would you continue at that point? If you've already seen how bad it was, if you continue past. And you're looking at the, the, at the METAR. Works, yeah. At the METAR here, you know, plus T-S-R-A. So plus means heavy thunderstorm uh, and rain at the airport. Hmm. It is on the Black Sea, by the way. The Black Sea, okay. It's just just north of Turkey. Okay. Not far from Georgia's border. So it's not far from where I am. Oh, wait a minute. The country (laughs) of Georgia. Uh, yeah, so I, I look forward to, you know, hearing more details about this and what exactly they were thinking, because everybody survived on the airplane. Uh, I believe the only person that passed was uh, one of the rescue workers. Is is that correct? I think. I think it was that one. I, I'm not yeah, entirely yeah. certain. I think that there was, was something where the, the same time frame where something like that happened. Yeah. Uh, no, I think you're confusing that with the uh, scuba diver. with nope. the. No, Chicago. this was a no. I'm not confusing with that. It was not a scuba diver. It was actually an ARFF. Um, yeah, it would have to be raining pretty hard, hard for them to need scuba divers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, three millimeters. I don't think you know. Yeah. I, I think I can but even do that. It's interesting that three mil is the difference between a wet runway and a contaminated runway. So it's right on the margins of being having to be treated as contaminated, which has considerably more ramifications on your braking efficiency than just a wet runway. Okay. So that was definitely significant. Okay. Well, we'll, uh, I'm sure be hearing more from the MAK, the, uh, investigatory agency in Russia. Yeah, regarding do they still this. hang people in Russia? I don't, mm, don't think so. Poison but, them. You know, <laughs> poison them. Yeah. Not, not in Russia. They Jeez. do that elsewhere though. <laughs> Okay, again, that's Nick at AirlinePilotGuy.com. Right. Uh, that was Dana, that one. That. No, <laughs> I said poison, you said hang, hanging. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Moving on. Moving on up. Uh, we're going to do, uh, thank you, Liz. She said one airport employee had a heart attack. So thank you. What? Uh, that was I'm, the one. I'm not surprised wearing all that scuba gear. <laughs> now speaking of scuba deer if you're uh, confused gear, dear listeners so are we yeah, so we're are very we. confused speaking of scuba divers losing their lives uh we'll move to uh b uh, an update on the lion air incident and uh, this is a aviation herald update um on the uh let's see the third of november uh, Indonesia's Navy reported a volunteer diver recovering body parts died probably because of decompression. And uh, the diver had also served in the Air Asia, uh, Indonesia's crash uh, 8501 four years ago uh, out over the Java Sea. And I believe that was a, a an Airbus A320. So he participated in that uh, dive as well, uh, but uh, that's sad to hear that somebody trying to help with the recovery efforts uh, passed. Uh, let's see. Let me just give you a quick update on the uh, Lion Air uh, 737 MAX 8. Did I do that all right? Correct. Ding. Okay. Ding. Thank you. Uh, where's my bell? There we go. Um On October 30th, the airline indicated they are going to accept whatever sanctions will be issued, including a grounding as of current 
inspections of all aircraft under supervision by the ministry are underway. On the 31st of October, the airline stated they have dismissed the technical director and assigned a new technical director. So apparently some some things were not quite right with the uh, safety uh, aspect of the airline. And uh, on the 1st of November, the airline confirmed one of their maintenance engineers was on board the aircraft during the accident flight. Uh, this was an anticipatory measure in the event of technical problems with the new aircraft. As such, the presence of the technician has nothing to do with the condition of the aircraft before taking off. And that was a quote from the airline or an airline spokesperson. And then uh, on November 5th, following the uh, KNKT, which I believe is their investigatory um, body, uh, release confirming airspeed indicator problems during the last four flights of the aircraft. A tweet posted on October 29th by Rezane Botti. <laughs> not sure. Anybody want to try that one? Ding. Okay. Thank you. Uh, gains sufficient weight to be rated as factual. The tweet states concerning flight 43 from uh, Dempasar to Jakarta, the last flight the aircraft completed, quote, Airspeed unreliable and ALT or altitude disagree shown after takeoff. STS was also running uh, to the wrong direction, suspected because of speed difference. Identified that captain instrument was unreliable and handover control to first officer. Continue non-normal checklist of airspeed unreliable and ALT disagree. And then um, Simon puts in here an editorial note. STS it stands for the speed trim system. As far as is known, so far the accident crew managed to control the aircraft for 12 minutes from takeoff to maintaining 5,000 feet at about 290 to 310 knots over the ground between 5,000 and 5,400 feet, which suggests they were flying on pitch and power for that time. It thus appears something beyond unreliable airspeed and altitude must have contributed to the, to the loss of control in minute 13. Um, so, uh, it went on to say, in addition, three different versions of maintenance logbook, uh, sheets were leaked to the internet. And we talked about that on the last episode. After a closer look, they all appeared to show the same logbook at a different point in time. Apart from the remark of unreliable airspeed and altitude, which prompted the flushing of the captain's static ports, that can be painful. An entry for elevator feel computer light illuminated uh, was written down by the flight crew of Flight 93, uh, presumably a typo and believed to be actually Flight 43. Maintenance opened and cleaned a cannon plug connector for the elevator feel computer. Checks by the Aviation Herald with AMEs and related maintenance manuals confirmed the logbook appeared authentic. The maintenance activity concerning that plug, however, could not have changed the forces on the pitch control of the yoke. Only the status and error messages concerning the system could have been affected by the main, by that maintenance activity. The elevator field computer has its own static and dynamic ports positioned at the tail of the aircraft and is purely mechanical with no electronic components except for some status monitoring. And it depends on hydraulic systems A and B available and does not depend on the instrumentation or air data references used for pilot instrumentation. And then finally, um, today... Uh, Boeing issued an operations manual bulletin to all Boeing 736, uh, 737 MAX operators stating that the investigation into the crash of this aircraft found one of the angle of attack sensors had provided incorrect readings, which could cause the aircraft's trim system 
to uncommandedly trim nose down in order to avoid a stall during manual flight. The operation manual bulletin directs operators to exist uh, to existing flight crew procedures to address circumstances when there is erroneous input from an AOA sensor or an angle of attack sensor. Again, the uh, operations manual bulletin reiterates the stabilizer runaway non-normal checklist. So I'm thinking, I've never heard of the speed trim system. We didn't have that in the Boeing that I flew, the uh, 727. And so I did a little bit more research about that. It's a speed stability augmentation system designed to improve flight characteristics during operations with a low gross weight, an aft center of gravity, and high thrust when the autopilot is not engaged. The purpose of the STS is to return the airplane to a trimmed speed by commanding the stabilizer in a direction opposite the speed change. The STS monitors inputs of stabilizer position, thrust lever position, airspeed, and vertical speed, and then trims the stabilizer using the autopilot stabilizer trim. As the airplane speed increases or decreases from the trimmed speed, the stabilizer is commanded in the direction to return the airplane to the trimmed speed. This increases control column forces to force the airplane to return to the trim speed. As the airplane returns to the trim speed, the STS commanded stabilizer movement is removed. Again, STS operates most frequently during takeoffs, climb, and go-arounds. And uh, there are some good conditions for it to uh, be uh, activated. The airspeed has to be, be between 100 knots and Mach 0.5, uh, at least 10 seconds after takeoff, 5 seconds following release of trim switches, autopilot not engaged and sensing of trim requirement. And uh, I did uh, find a, uh, a um, QRH procedure for the 737. I don't think it's directly from the 737 MAX 8, but I was just kind of curious because I know that uh, I also included the, uh, the 727 uh, runaway stabilizer um, non-normal checklist. Of course, this is a 737, not a 727, uh, but it's very similar. It says that if you have a runaway stab uh, or uncommanded stabilizer trim movement occurs continuously, uh, control column hold firmly, disengage the autopilot if it's engaged, engaged. Uh, do not re-engage the autopilot. And it says control airplane pitch attitude manually with control column and main electric trim as needed. And then if it stops the runaway, then that's the end of the procedure. But if the runaway continues... Uh, you are supposed to activate both of the stab trim cutout switches. And uh, then uh, we have the stabilizer trim wheel on the uh, Boeings where you actually grasp that wheel and hold hold it because that's actually a physical connection to the uh, the trim system. And, uh, and then you trim manually like you would a big, like you're flying a big 172. And I don't think 172s have electric trim, do they? Not any of the ones I've flown. Okay. No. I don't think so. Anyway. I, I worry is that I've flown have electric trim, but not the, not the Cessnas. So we have a, a situation here where, you know, we, we when we were talking about this before, we had very little information and we were thinking, well, it must have been another one of those incidents where they didn't know what pitch picture and power setting to use. But apparently uh, now we know a little bit more that that's probably what they were doing. But this other factor is thrown in there now. Uh, this um, speed trim system, and it's possible that this um, speed trim system may have resulted in a um, in, in a runaway 
stabilizer uh, trimming system. And that's why Boeing is saying, uh, everybody, you need to know how to do this procedure because it could be, you know, could save your life. And uh, so what do you all think? I'm finished talking. Well, the first thing I was going to say is that when you first, I first looked at this, I thought, well, this might be two uh, emergencies that have, has occurred. That's really tough for the crew. It might be uh, unreliable uh, altitude um, and speed, and then they get a trim runaway, which would be really tough. But um, when I've read the um, full flight crew operations manual bulletin for the aircraft, which I've got a copy of, uh, I notice uh, that uh, they are reminded. Uh, additionally, pilots are reminded that erroneous AOA can cause some or all of the following indications and effects. And they're included amongst those are IAS disagree alert, altitude disagree alert, AOA disagree alert. So those alerts that were being written up, uh, or I would suggest are probably caused by the faulty angle of attack sensor uh, and actually uh, weren't actually a physical thing. So flushing out the pitot probes, the tubes, sorry, um, uh, wouldn't have fixed this problem if, if the fault was coming from the angle of attack probe. Now, I have no idea why in a Boeing that uh, a faulty airway gauge or a vein gives you that fault. I don't know. But it does also mention that uh, if you get a fault, the pitch trim system can trim the stabilizer nose down in increments lasting up to 10 seconds. If you get a full 10 seconds of nose down trim on an airplane, that's going to create a hell of an out of trim force. Um, and it will do it in bursts. So you could then, they could then be followed up by another 10 seconds. Um, and uh, it, funny enough, it doesn't happen with the autopilot in, uh, only when you're manually flying. So the one thing the guys would probably be doing at that point uh, would be flying attitude and manually flying it, which makes them vulnerable to this uh, stab runaway. Uh, it sounds to me like, you know, there is something reasonably fundamental, and uh, I don't think I'm inclined to blame the crew in any form or manner. It sounds like it was a really nasty situation they might have been in. Yeah. Now, in the uh, Aviation Herald article, it says that they flushed out the captain's static ports. But again, it doesn't really matter. It, it As you say, it really has nothing to do with the AOA vein or, or system there. Uh, that that would not have helped the situation at all. No, but I don't know enough about uh, this aircraft, how they've changed the 737 uh, into the 8 and what, what is involved. Right. Does it seem an overly complicated system because it's uh, yeah. all mechanical? Uh, but what was occurring there? I don't know. I, I'm waiting for Colonel Jeff, uh, the handsome one, to oh, yeah. um, let us know uh, really the ins and outs of this. Yes. Colonel Jeff, if you're listening, uh, we'd love to hear your perspective on this. I'm sure you know a little bit about more about this system than uh, than we do, for sure. Uh, but it looks like, as you said, that they had their hands full with um a multiple or compounded emergencies here. So, yeah, I mean, we, we can't really say much on this until we have a lot more data. I mean, none of us here fly the airplane. Um, it's really an old system with modifications made to it to make, uh, well, the airplane, not, I can't say the system, but the airplane's been modified for modern, modern flying with the old systems still on it and original design that have been modified for modern times. So I don't know whether there's a problem there or, you know, it's, it seems to be 
the Max, and maybe it's just that particular airplane. But um, I just I, I, I feel for those those two crew members that were, in, of course, everybody on the airplane, but those two crew members that were that were fighting with a problem that they just were not aware of. What's interesting also is I read somewhere more about this speed trim system, and they said that it was necessary to install this system because, again, as I mentioned, uh, the 727 didn't have anything like this at all. Uh, but they said that uh, in order to certificate the airplane uh, in you know the new gen, I don't know at what point it started. I don't think it was the original classic 737 that had this system, but maybe um, some of the latest iterations and maybe just the max. Uh, again, I don't know, uh, but they said there was some kind of a comment that Boeing had to put the system in to get the aircraft certificated. And so that may have something to do with uh, the power of the engines, perhaps um, with the newer, newer models. I don't know. Length of the airframe. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. I think you mentioned uh, low weight, uh, high engine power. And uh, with an RCOG, it was a combination that uh, probably mm-hmm. gave them problems passing the certification until they fitted this. So we can only wait to find out exactly what that is, although this is getting so close now to um, uh, problems of litigation. I'm beginning to wonder how much more we are going to find. But I guess the NTSB are pretty good usually at revealing all this stuff, but it'll take them uh, best part of another six months, I'd have thought, to get something out. Perhaps. Mm -hmm. Something to be revisited, perhaps. Yes, I'm sure we will be revisiting this one as well as the previous one we talked about that uh, crash in Sochi. Mm. Um, shall we move on? Keep this thing going? Sure. Let's do it. All right. Uh, this was sad. I don't know how many of you heard about this, but uh, this beautiful young couple, both seniors at uh, Sam Houston State University in Texas, um, got married. They hired a helicopter uh, pilot to fly them in a Bell 206B Jet Ranger. And uh, sometime after the wedding that evening, um, they're not sure exactly if they were repositioning to a different location or what was going on there. But uh, the, air, the uh, helicopter crashed. And, um, and I just uh, thought that that was so sad that uh, they, they got married and then, you know, they, they thought they were going to go out and... Well, I guess they did go out in glory. But uh, anyway, do you have a chance to look at any of this? Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of information, I don't think, in this article about it. Other no. Than what no. you just stated, but wow, how sad. I mean, yeah, I can't even imagine. Anyway. Yeah, it. I mean, when I saw it, it just brought, I, I almost, almost came to complete control, uncontrolled crime because think of these two people that are uh, just newly you know, newly married and looking forward to sending off and having a wonderful life together. And they're two seem to be two successful people, at least from uh, successful families have their own ranches and uh, to, uh, to have it end that quick on, on your, on your wedding night. It's just, it's, it's just a real Greek tragedy. Yeah. This does, the only hint that we have here is that it was at night and the wreckage is strewn across the hillside that rises above rugged terrain about 80 miles west of San Antonio. So it may have been a controlled flight into terrain um, incident. We don't know. Yeah. But it comes after we had a tragic helicopter accident. I don't know a great deal about it uh, in a uh, football stadium here where the owner of a, um, a football club, a much loved gentleman who had done so much to uh, 
look after the club, uh, was tragically killed very shortly after takeoff. Um, and, Do they know what happened? Was it an engine failure? Uh, no, we don't really know, but the company has put out a bulletin uh, grounding all their aircraft in, until they've all had tail rotor drive inspections. So by the looks of it, it looks like they lost the tail rotor um, and uh, went into whatever that thing the helicopter does when it starts spinning uncontrollably. Uh, sadly, uh, two pilots on board who are actually married uh, as well as uh, the owner of the club and uh, some of his staff. Everyone died very sad. Oh, tragic. Wow. You know, I, in, in the last FO I just uh, flew with, he flew in the uh, Army for a very long time, flew helos for a very long time. Oh, was that with the uh, the above average uh, Army guy? Yes. Yeah. Above average, yes. <laughs> I, I met him, very nice bloke. Was he the bloke that nearly gripped yep. my hand? I mean, yeah. I, I, he nearly crashed my fingers. <laughs> he, was well, he, was, he, was, he was thinking he was, he's grabbing onto the, the uh, what's it, the uh, governor? No, not the, the collective. Uh, collective. <laughs> yeah, the collective. No, he was grabbing onto the governor. That's, you know, that, that's Nick. Governor. So. <laughs> the governor. But, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll be the governor. Governor. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he, I mean, he... he he really loves flying helos and I'm of the opposite end of the spectrum. You know, that, that thing stops rotating. You're going nothing but straight down. And with an airplane, at least you can glide. I have a chance to glide someplace. I don't care about the auto rotation, anything, you know, at the very least, you're going to be three inches shorter when you hit with auto rotation. So, um, I, I, I'm not a fan of helicopters never have been and never will be. No, an air, airplane that when you take your hand and feet off the controls just goes, becomes uncontrollable. It has no natural stability at all. Uh, terrifies me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree with you, Nick. Uh, well, <sighs> done. well, done. we managed it first time this year. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Did, did, <laughs> did you record that? Yes. <laughs> It's a, a milestone moment on the APG. Okay. Uh, e, first husband and wife duo to fly B-2 stealth bombers retire after making history. The B-2 stealth bomber is able to fly into enemy territory undetected, undetected, making it one of the most feared aircraft in the world, according to Lieutenant Colonel Jennifer, or excuse me, no, Lieutenant Colonel Jennifer Avery was the first woman to fly it. And she said, uh, honestly, I never thought I would be a pilot. I was very kind of insecure in high school. Uh, but she overcame that insecurity and earned her Air Force wings in 1997. Then she heard that there was a search on for B-2 pilots. I decided to throw my name into the hat, adding that she didn't intend to blaze a trail for women. I just applied because it intrigued me. Uh, she got the job, but there was a problem. It meant she'd have to leave her boyfriend, John, who was also an Air Force pilot and moved to the B-2 base in Missouri. And uh, he said, it's obviously an incredible airplane, but that had a significant role in the decision process. So they both became B-2 pilots and eventually husband and wife. It was another first in Air Force history, but it also meant they could never be in the same plane because you're not allowed to fly together if you're married. Uh, she went on to fly a mission in Operation Iraqi Freedom. She is still the only woman to fly a B-2 in combat. Combat. When asked why more women don't go after these jobs, she said that there could be a perception problem, uh, that they think that they won't be accepted, according to Jennifer. 
the couple went on to fly B-2s for the Air National Guard until they both retired from the military in September of this year, giving them more time to focus on the ultimate mission, their two children. And uh, John says, uh, I have ultimate respect for her because I know that she's an incredible pilot, but I know that she's even an even better mother. And they'll always have that connection to the exclusive club in the sky. Very cool. Yeah, Great article. Very nice. mm-hmm. Finally, a, a nice picture story. Here. A pi- yeah, uh, something that's, they didn't crash as far as we know. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully. Good or overrun yeah. a runway. Yeah. Um, well, they do have two kids to show for it. That's true. That's true. Um, Gus uh, sent this in, this news item. Um, a An admittedly intoxicated American Airlines baggage handler fell asleep on the job and ended up flying from Kansas City to Chicago in the belly of a Boeing 737. Whoops. Yeah, the employee who works for American subsidiary Piedmont Airlines at Kansas City International Airport was working on the ramp for American Flight 363 on Saturday, October 27th. So I guess Friday night was kind of rough when he apparently took a nap inside the cargo hold before the flight. No one noticed him missing and the plane took off at 5.52 a.m. local time with the worker in the forward cargo hold. Airline and law enforcement officials confirmed the baggage handler who has not been identified wasn't discovered until the plane landed at, at O'Hare International Airport and parked at the gate just before 7.30 a.m. local time. Uh, let's see. He told law enforcement officials he was intoxicated and fell asleep. I'm not sure I would have admitted that. Uh, I was just it was just a long line. I didn't get a lot of sleep. I No, I didn't drink anything. No. But he said, yeah, yeah I'd had too much to drink. And um he fell asleep. He's 23 years old, was unharmed, and did not request any medical attention when the flight landed in Chicago. The cargo hold is pressurized and heated, he said. And uh, He probably got a more comfortable ride than he would have in the cabin. Yeah, he could have just, like, oh, sprawled that... out, you know? Yeah. 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 I'm sure he yeah. just continued his nap right Absolutely. on. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to request that the next time I need uh, some extra leg room on a flight. Yep. Just put me in the cargo hold. It'll be fine. I'll just sprawl out there amongst the luggage and boxes. Yep. Now, Dana and I have seen this all the time when we do our external pre-flights. We do our walk-arounds outside, and sometimes it's not uncommon for us to see people inside the baggage holds um, resting their eyelids or uh, examining the backside of their eyelids. Pick me. Um, huh? Pick me. Yeah. Just so guess one what? Of them. You, I yeah. used to work in it. I used to see ah. it, and I used to be the supervisor that was trying to prevent it. Yeah. So I'm very, very well versed. You've seen all sides of the story. I've seen all sides of the story, and I will admit it is definitely an issue. And it, it and one of the things they hit upon is it is very hard work. Mm-hmm. The hours are long. The physicality of the job is long. It's, it's hard, and um, you know these guys probably you know you're not not in the highest common denominator for most of them. So a lot of them will stay out late at night go see their girlfriends, go party, show up in the morning for a 4 a.m. shift. And, you know, they're dog dead tired. And, and next thing you know, they're, they're snoozing there. And if, what could possibly go wrong? What could possibly happen? Yeah. A person familiar with the American incident in Kansas City, but unauthorized to speak publicly about it, said the napping employee was overlooked because no bags were loaded into the forward cargo hold and the door was closed. 
I guess they figured that there wasn't anybody in there. Let's close this thing up. Yeah. And, 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 and how, you know, somebody say, well, how could that possibly happen? Well, if it's, if it's an odd hour, like if it's in the morning or in the evening, and it's dark, you know, not all the time are the lights turned on in the bin. It's not automatically, they're not autom- automatically turned on. So if it's a dark bin and there's somebody laying there, you don't hear them, you don't see them, you close the door in the way they go. So that's how that could easily happen. Mm-hmm. And if you were really kind of hung over, you may not, you know, even realize it until maybe after the airplane's already in the air. Uh, uh, anyway. Um, that would be an interesting way to wake up, though. Can you imagine? Yeah. Like, especially uh. if you're hung, like, just. <laughs> Whoa, what? dude. What What's going on? <laughs> what do I do now? Uh, there was an incident uh, not long ago where uh, the same sort of thing happened and the, the pilots and some of the first class passengers heard some noises, like, some banging and yelling. And they said, I think that uh, there's a there's a uh, ramp worker in the baggage hold and uh, they ended up diverting or turning around or whatever. And uh, an- another incident, incident, I believe uh, the person just used their cell phone and called somebody and say, yeah, hey, tell them I'm in the cargo compartment but i think and in this article they said that um they weren't allowed to have their cell phones or something like that with them on the ramp so uh you know i guess he didn't have a phone to call anybody i don't know if that's true or not speaking of intoxication well and I, we've seen you know we've been doing this for quite a while and we've seen a lot of these stories where a pilot a commercial airline pilot shows up to work after perhaps drinking a little bit too much or too soon before showtime. Uh, But uh, this has got to take the cake, I think. A Japanese pilot has confessed to being almost 10 times over the alcohol limit shortly before a flight from Heathrow. Katsutoshi Jitsukawa, 42, was arrested after being reported to police when an airport bus driver smelled alcohol on him. The drunk pilot failed a breath test just 50 minutes before the Japan Airlines flight to Tokyo. Tests revealed he had 189 milligrams of alcohol per 100 milliliters of blood in his system. The limit for a pilot intending to fly is 20. The drink drive limit in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland is 80. Uh, Japan Airlines issued an apology and pledged to implement immediate actions to prevent any future occurrence adding that safety remains our utmost priority. And the flight departed after a 69-minute delay. That's a lot. How was the guy able to stand up with that much alcohol? 0.18, 0.19. Wow. I've seen higher. I don't drink, so I don't know if that's uh, a lot (laughs) or not. It's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I don't drink either. Mine's iced tea tonight. (laughs) Seriously, iced tea. Only 4% by volume. (laughs) Anyway, um... No, it, it, so there's a lot of things that the human body can accommodate to, sometimes for good, sometimes for not so good. This is one of those things. If you drink regularly, um, you can increase your tolerance, meaning you can be more um, apparently coherent and uh, functional. I say apparently because, um, you know, if you if you really start to test that, it's, it's going to fall apart. Um, but a lot of people with that level of alcohol would not be certainly conscious. And a lot of people would have significant problems, um, perhaps even lethal consequences, depending on the purpose, uh, on the person. Um, but if it's something that you build up your tolerance to slowly over time and your specific physio- physiology allows for it, uh, 
yeah, you can have that high of a blood alcohol content and be seemingly okay. Wow. Yeah, but are we talking functioning alcoholics here, are we? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, well, the only thing I have to say to you, Katsutoshi Jitsukawa, is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's 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 one of those things that for some people really just becomes a a big problem and they can't break that cycle of it. And I mean, certainly we don't want it to be something our uh, pilots up in the skies are dealing with, but it happens to people amongst all all walks of life where they can have problems with alcohol use and abuse. Yep. And it's pretty sad. I mean, because, you know, reality is it's 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 a disease that people Mm -hmm. are. Uh, a victim to and and I've got a buddy lives you know, he actually worked in the industry as a flight attendant um, lives around the corner and he was he's been stopped and uh, spent some time in jail and the whole nine yards and just you see somebody that's completely consumed and controlled by it and, and goes on they go on these binges and it, and it's truly sad I mean you know if you can get your hand your head around it and be able to control it then you know you're that much better of it but as as Doug Steph said there's people in every walk of life that uh, has to deal or has issues we all have issues i think whether it be alcohol or anything else that we all have to deal with in life and uh, unfortunately this guy just let it control and uh sad i mean look look at look at last week when uh you know, we're in DC together. I mean, I just said, that's it. I mean, I get a fly in the morning. I'm not going to, I'm not going to take any chances. It's just not worth it. So some people have that ability to just say done. Right. And other people just can't say no. Can't stop. Mm -hmm. I wonder if he's going to get jail time. Oh, I'm sure he will. I would Um, not be surprised. All right. Well, that's it for the news. And I think now it's time for us to get on with your great feedback captain incoming message let's start off with arno and he sent us some audio feedback and let's go ahead and play it hello apg crew this is arno from paris one of uh, your big fan here in france It has been a long time since my last feedback, but it was for a good reason, because I was uh, studying a lot to pass and succeed my uh, multi-engine instrument rated uh, qualification, and I succeeded. I congratulate myself, thank you very much. I am sending you this feedback because um, during my training of multi-engine qualification there was something very strange done by the instructor and I would like to to get the um, feedback from Dr. Steph uh, as regard her trainings. So dur- during the first hours of multi-engine we, we were cruising at altitude and we were um, training with only one engine so we put one engine fever we fever the engine we reduced the, the power and the, and the mixture but the, the engine was was running at very low power 
Okay, the, let's say the dead engine was still running, but the instructor told me to shut it down. Shut down the dead engine. And my brain refused. <laughs> I did not comply to the instructor, even if it was a training, to shut it down. Because I was not sure it was able to restart. So the instructor did it. He shut it down the dead engine for training. So it was very the first time for me to fly. Okay, to fly on one engine on the multi-engine, and one dead engine was was dead for training, but really dead. And then of course the instructor restarted the engine. Ah, I, I I forgot to mention it was on the PA30 Comanche. Piper PS30 Comanche. I am not sure my pronunciation is good. Very nice airplane, by the way. And there was some uh, new fancy, some new fancy GPS Garmin and some 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 EFIS on this airplane. So I wanted to know if uh, for Dr. Steph it was also the same during her multi-engine training to push the training and to shut down the engine. So we did it once and only once during my training. It was of course at cruise level. So that's it from my question. Uh, and so as for my personal um, experience, so it took me nine years to achieve to be a commercial Muta engine instrument rated pilot as Dr. Steph. It was a very long journey. Happiness was really in the journey. I really like it to, to learn. I passed twice in Europe the ATPL exam. I'm not the only one, but it's crazy to, pa to pass twice the ATPL exam. And now I will... Uh, End of October uh, 2018. So this year I will uh, I will do my multi-crew qualification to finish my training and maybe trying to to um, to be selected to I would say to pass selections for the the major airlines here in France. Um, or even at uh, some regionals, maybe EasyJet. The difficulty for me would be to become a regional pilot and to succeed financially and continue to, to raise my family with three kids, so it won't be so easy, but let's do the training first, the selections, I would say. Let's do the selection and and pass the selections and uh, let's have an offer and we will see. Uh, it will be a uh, hard decision financially and, and, and from the family side, but anyway, let's see. Uh, whatever it happens in the future, it was really a pleasure to become a multi-engine commercial pilot. Of course, it costs a lot. That's why it took me nine years to do it. 
Uh, I am 41 year old, so I started at 30, and it took me some years to do it because of the the financial burden, and I wanted to avoid to get some to to contract uh, additional debt, so uh, I do it uh, over the years. So that's it. Thank you very much for listening to me. I'm not sure it was clear. Because I'm driving, so maybe the background noise, it's not so comfortable for the listeners. Thank you very much for your show. One day I will offer some of uh, participation, some financial participation, but as of today, as I spent all all of my money for this uh, flying, uh, I'm very sorry not to be able to to offer you some coffee funds. I am very sorry. Maybe in the future, once my financials will be better. I wish you clear sky, unlimited visibility, and tailwind at cruise altitude. Thank you. Goodbye. Arnaud, 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 congratulations. Absolutely brilliant. Fantastic. So proud of you, man. Yeah. Tout à l'heure. Oh, something in French. Tout à l'heure. And don't don't be silly, Arno. You know, we've, and maybe I haven't said it recently uh, or often enough, is that, uh, you know, we talk about the coffee fund at the beginning of the show, and I, you know, I always try to remember to tell people that don't, you know, this is a free show. We're, we're doing this for free. Um, you don't have to set us a dime. And especially if you're needing to spend the money on, you know, shelter and food and clothing. And, and most importantly, as you just did over the last nine years, spend it on your flight training. And uh, he's a perfect example for, you know, a situation where don't, don't be part of the coffee fund cadre because you need to spend the money on more important things. So and isn't, don't be isn't silly. Flight training over there in Europe ex- exorbitantly expensive as well. Uh, at least yes. more expensive than it is here. That's that's for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. very expensive. Cost, so. cost of fuel and the cost of aircraft. Yeah, definitely. Wow, that's such an exciting um, story, and we completely uh, understand regarding the. You know, moving on with the uh, the multi um, uh, what was the uh, multi crew uh, rating? Yeah, it's a little different than it is here, but no multi multi crew, so that he can do. It's a different path oh. towards being a in the right seat in an airline mm-hmm. uh, environment in Europe. But yeah, he's talking here. about the possibility of getting on with the majors or perhaps a regional like uh, EasyJet, and you know, looking at what the offer will be. And you know, he is forty one years old now and has a family and so he has a lot of things to consider uh when it comes to yeah, but he's taking a very sensible jump. approach, isn't he, Jeff? Yes. He's uh, he's gonna have a look see and, and just do the sums and see if he can afford it. So yeah. But we wish you well whichever path you decide to take uh on a- Absolutely. <laughs> now the, the the very beginning yes. he yeah. talks about this situation that he had in uh in the airplane and that doesn't seem to me uh, like a very safe thing. That it doesn't sound so, illegal to me. A couple of considerations, though, and I think Dana is going to have some more things mm-hmm. to add about this. Being the uh, instructor here in the group, the um, so to answer his question first off, yes, we did. However, you have to consider aircraft type um, in this. So I did my training in a uh, Piper Seneca, 
a little bit. Uh, I think he said he was in the PA 30, which is the twin Comanche, correct? Twin Comanche built before 1972. That's correct. Correct. Um, and there's a couple different variants there, which will, well, they changed the designation. So we'll get into that in a minute. But um, the uh, multi-engine aircraft, the twin that I did, the light twin that I did my training in has counter-rotating propellers, um, which eliminates the critical engine component of, uh, uh, which we've talked about before. But basically, um, it, it diminishes the loss of control um, factor if you have a critical engine. So if you have both engines rotating in the same direction, usually clockwise as you're facing the engines from the cockpit, then your left engine will be the critical engine. And if you lose that engine, then your uh, potential for loss of control uh, events increases significantly for a number of factors, which I won't go into at the moment. Um, but yes, we did shut ours down intentionally. I actually have pictures of it, which I was just looking at and perusing. Um, and not without discussion in advance that that was going to happen. It was not a surprise. Um, and there was definite discussion about what to do in the event that for some reason we could not get the engine restarted, um, which fortunately was not a, a concern at all with the aircraft that we were flying. So David, I think, has potentially some more to add into this because the Twin Comanche does not have counter-rotating propellers. Yeah, Dr. Steph, and, and I had a, I actually had to call a buddy of mine that's uh, also a uh, instructor extraordinaire, and, and we had a very interesting conversation uh, regarding this. Now, the PA-30, which I had to listen intently, I had to listen a couple times, I know, to make sure I got it right. The PA-30, which is prior to 1972, does not have a counter-rotating crop. The PA-39, which is after 1972, does. Um, so, you know, Doug Steph talked about the fact that you, uh, you know, you have a critical engine um, and we don't need to, you know, belay that uh, fact anymore. We don't want to talk about it anymore. But what I will say is, you know, my initial reaction is on a PA-30, I don't think I'm going to be shutting down an engine. Intentionally, if I have not the left engine, yeah, certainly not the left engine. And if I am going to do that, Dr. Steph talked about the fact that we're going to talk about it ahead of time. Now, I did my uh, uh, my twin engine training in a Seminole, very similar to the Seneca, and it has counter rotating prop. And yes, we did shut down the engine. And yes, one of the most important things is you're at a a a very satisfactory altitude, which is you know three thousand and or above, and in vicinity of a, a suitable landing field, such as an yes. airport, yeah. um, so that you have glide the ability to glide to that airport in, if you're going to do this. And I don't necessarily think it's a bad idea to shut down engine in flight as long as those parameters are met. But I do think it's a bad idea to do it at, as a surprise, number one. And number two, um, on an airplane like a PA-30, which I have a lot of time in, by the way, I have a lot of time in the twin Comanche. I have a lot of time in the single engine Comanche. Uh, and one of the bad things about the old Comanches uh, is that the older Comanches, 72 and earlier, had bladder tanks, which have rubber. Uh, it's a, basically a rubber tank. And they have been known to contaminate the fuel and cause an engine shutdown, which, by the way, I experienced on a single engine Comanche. Uh, fortunately, we were able to get the engine back by switching fuel tanks, but we were also fully configured and, and very low to the ground and uh, trying to cross power lines when the engine quit. Not a good time. So um, just based on my experience, I think that uh, it's a great, learning tool because you know there's nothing better than doing the actual deed however um 
if it was anything. And, and I think you did mention they were cruise altitude. So that was. Yeah. So altitude was sufficient. Airspeed is sufficient. So yeah, you know, airspeed and altitude are uh, critical factors. Um, but, you know, it being that said, I, I do remember specifically a training accident uh, with a tw- twin engine seminal that uh, they lost control of the airplane and they crashed the airplane because they couldn't reset the airplane and uh, the engine on the airplane. And uh, the instructor was, you know, and that's one of the biggest factors nowadays is the instructors don't have the experience that, you know, when when we had the big stagnation going on, there were a lot of instructors, a lot of experience. And I'm not saying there are not a lot of instructors now with a lot of experience, but there are a lot more instructors that have limited amount of experience and limited amount of multi-engine time. And uh, that, when when I heard that that it was a PA thirty, um, my uh, my my underwear, which is by the way, for those that can't see on the video, um, but I can tell you on the radio, um, have uh, an APG two APG underwears up here. But those are getting the crunch for me real quick because I I just I don't think that's a wise idea on that airplane. Do you care to see the photo that we took? Because it's a pretty photo. See if I can hold it up here without too much glare from. Uh, I don't yep. know if you can see that. Okay. That's definitely Sonica. Yep. Uh, yep. Yeah. And that's definitely a prop that has stopped spinning. It definitely is. You know, and, 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 let, and let's be, let, let's face it. You know, when you put a prop into full feather in flight, you might as well not have a prop out there. Um, yeah. It's, it's really no, it, no big deal. You know, the concern is just having a, a plan for what happens if you can't get that engine restarted and then just continuing to fly the aircraft. And it's, and it's very bad for the engine. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you basically taking an engine, you, you go from full hot cold shocking it and uh, you know, then trying to restart it. So I feel like there was something that we did to help minimize that effect, but I can't remember what it was since it's been a while since I've done any multi-engine flying, but yeah, it's been a long time since, since yeah. I've done. Well, I do multi-engine flying every time. I right, go but you're not shutting down a little bit intentionally every time. <laughs> well, we're not supposed to. There was, there was something that we did that I think was supposed to minimize those effects, and I cannot let for life of me remember what it's, it was. It, Perhaps it's a mixture. engine instructor. Yeah, it's a, that, that it's a mixture. What it was. So, so, you know, so I have a question, if mm-hmm. I may interrupt this amazing discussion. Um, do you think it's likely that it's part of his syllabus that he is required to handle the aircraft with one engine dead? It's it may very well be. Yeah. As, as a matter of fact, Nick, you are we in agree, we are in agreement because you asked the question, and I actually went out and did the research on this. Good man. Um, there are syllabuses out there that do require that that they do require that the engine be completely shut down. And when I went through training, um, that was part of the syllabus is that the engine had to be shut down. And of course, with that being said, you were following a prescribed uh, manner in which you were going to do that. You have to have, you know, cruise altitude, as I mentioned, then around the airport and, you know, it, it has to be set circumstances. You know, the weather has to be such, you know, so that's where the syllabus is very structured. And, and I don't know, I mean, over in, in France, I don't know under the, uh, the local rules, whether, you know, it's part like here in the United States where we have part 141, part 61, you know, it, whether it's a, a freelance instructor, whether it's a, you know, it's a, a, a professional instructor that does nothing but primary students, you know, there's different levels of experience there that apply that syllabus. And that's where I, you know, kind of, kind of get chapped up on 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 what uh, what was going on there because that's a dangerous situation 
I'm, I'm, I'm going to a comment, for, I, and I'm reading into Anna's audio here, which may not be fair. Uh, he sounded like he came as a surprise to him. It did. Yeah. So I'm just wondering what kind of pre-flight briefing uh, he got. Uh, if I was going to shut an engine down on a student, I would hope that I, we would have covered it beforehand because uh, it's a little bit unfair and you're trying to train someone when you do something so unexpected. Sure, and I think you you get rid of that briefing component that Dana and I have both talked about numerous times now about where you are going to do this and what the parameters are going to be and uh, what to do in case there actually is an emergency in that situation. I guess it was a surprise to him that he was asked to shut the engine down, but I think he asked Arno to just shut down the engine, correct? And he said he didn't, he wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, Arno did not. Would. Refused to shut down the engine. So I guess the instructor shut it down. The instructor just pulled it and said, see ya. Now, so, but here's here's the thing with that. If you do a proper pre-flight, pre-flight briefing, that would not be a surprise. And one of the things that the FAA talks about, and I'm doing my recurrent training on my, on my CFI, is negative training. All right, in that situation, I'm sorry, that's negative training. You do not want to scare the living bejeebas out of your students without for first pre-briefing him, talking about it and talking about contingencies and what could possibly happen. Yeah, that's exactly my point, Dana. So the other, the second point I was going to bring out was that um, the Canberra, um, a twin engine jet uh, photo recce bomber that the Air Force had for many years, um, used to have pretty poor single engine performance, uh, but they would regularly teach their pilots how to make single engine approaches. They lost more aircraft and killed more pilots doing practice approaches than they ever would have done if they had just ejected out of an aircraft that lost an engine. So they had so few engine failures compared with the number of aircraft they lost practicing how to cope with an engine failure that they'd have been better off and they'd have lost less lives if they just said, oh, we've lost an engine, pointed out to see and eject. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Hmm. So I'm not too sure sometimes on the validity of uh, a lot of uh, the things that we insist on pilots being able to do. Obviously, in our job, we don't have really the option. <laughs> oh, yeah, we have to, we've got to come back and laugh. Must <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and, and, and the thing is that uh, I remember watching a navigator whose pilot had upset him, waiting for him as he got out of the aircraft at the bottom of the steps. And when he turned around to, to walk in, he hit him in the face. And uh, I'd have been tempted if I'd been in Arno's airplane to possibly take that option. Yeah, and you bring up a valid point, Nick, and that is in civilian flying, um, you know, there's always going to be instances where you lose, you know, an aircraft sometimes within your control and sometimes beyond the control, as we talked about the incident uh, down in Daytona, if I remember correctly, where the airplane wing just came off of a, uh, an examiner's airplane that been had been doing it for many, many, many years. But, you know, I, I don't, I do recall a couple of instances where aircraft that are training, more or less training aircraft, the twin engine aircraft uh, that have gone down, but very few, not not like what you're talking oh, about. Uh, no, I'm not talking about, no, no. The Canberra was a particularly hard airplane to fly on one engine. Right. So it was a pretty dangerous approach. If you let the speed get back, uh, you couldn't put enough throttle on to adr- arrest the speed decay because you're on the wrong side of the drag club without exceeding the rudder authority and the airplane turned on its back. 
So it was a nightmare. And I'm not, not suggesting that uh, that's an option uh, for uh, several twins because, of course, you hadn't got the option to abandon the airplane. So unless you use one of those fancy parachutes. Right. And have a door that you can actually get out of easily. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking about one that brings the airplane. Oh, like oh, Cirrus. Yeah. Yeah, Cirrus. But the only problem is Cirrus doesn't have a twin engine. It's only a single engine airplane. Oh, well, if they built one big enough for twins. But anyway, I'd love to have one on my um, uh, on my 330. That'd be good. That'd be Just a, a giant cool. parachute. Yeah. Just a yeah, giant system. parachute. Yeah. I think the good news is we have a full airplane parachute. Bad news is it's so heavy we can't carry any passengers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> good point. Yeah. Well, most important thing. Congratulations, Arno. Absolutely. And we wish you the best yeah. of luck. And, oh, absolutely. And, and, and as as Jeff was saying at the beginning, listen, we, we do this out, out of the uh, pleasure of talking about aviation. And so it brings me me great pleasure personally to know that you're out there uh, excelling and hopefully uh, becoming a, a fellow aviator as, you know, in the airline business, we're all aviators, but a fellow pilot uh, flying a commercial airliner and uh Wish you all the best. So thank you for listening to us. Yes. Congratulations, Arno. Yep. Yeah. Congrats. And keep us informed as to where your journey takes you from this point. It'll be very interesting, I think, for all of us. All right. Uh, second item, John, uh, we, we talked on a previous episode. I don't remember which one it was, but uh, the uh, wonderful plain tales regarding the, the pigeons. Uh, that was a couple of episodes ago, I think. Right. Like a month ago, maybe. Yeah. Was that yeah. that many? Uh, okay. Yeah, pretty good. Okay. Um, he, John Roberts sent this in. He said, here's an animated movie about pigeons in World War II from their point of view. Very fun and well done. Instantly came to mind as I listened to your plain tales. And John says, love the show, especially plain tales. I would have watched yeah. it, but it was going to cost me £3.99 on, on Netflix. So. You're so cheap. Yeah, I am. We could have, uh, that could have been an expense from the uh, coffee fund. Oh, damn it. Told me. I mean, it's yeah. got you and McGregor in it, Ricky Gervais, um, John Cleese, uh, Dan Roberts. I mean, it's got some great voices. Hugh Laurie. Hugh Laurie, yeah. Tim uh, Curry. Rick Mayle. Uh, yeah, would have been John Hurt, for heaven's sake. I mean, Oscar winning actors. Uh, mm-hmm. So it would have been, yeah, I think I'm, I might fall count then if the copy bar. I think you're going to have to splurge on this one. <laughs> in, let me ask you this question, Nick. Did you ever hear Hugh Laurie with an English, with the American accent? Oh, in house. Oh, house. He was, I love really? it. I, I don't know. I, don't know how I had no idea he was guys. an American. Yeah. Really? I, I had oh, no yeah. idea either until I actually heard him talking one time. Because I wasn't like, familiar with that, him what? before house. And then I, yeah, same thing. I happened to see an interview and I was like, <laughs> why is he using that fake British accent? Yeah. I was like, well, that's a very good British accent well, that he's putting very on. Hard. Wait a minute. Having, having seen him in Black Adder, um, particularly Black Black Adder goes forth, it's very hard to then think of him as a fan, the fantastic job he did acting in house. Very yeah. good. No, he's uh, he's very talented. You know, the thing I noticed about his American accent, though, Nick, is that he he didn't t- produce uh, accentuate every R. That uh, you do or when you do. Well, I do this because I'm doing an American pirate. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay. We don't accentuate eyes at all. Dana doesn't. Yeah, Dana doesn't. Yeah. (laughs) We don't understand Dana, though. Not (laughs) a word. Most most people don't understand me, as a matter of fact. (laughs) I don't blame them, though. Uh, Item number three. uh, Now, this is from Brett, and he says, um, 
This is Brett Seymour uh, from Huntsville. He's an aviation nerd in Rocket City, according to himself. Uh, Jeff, please get Nick to read this when this one bubbles up in the feedback folder. This should be a good one. So, okay. got you want to read this? Got something in my throat, Jeff. Uh, sorry, could you do this? <laughs> no. <laughs> HR mandates that this was sent to you. You must must read. I must read. Oh. Dear old commander, I'm sorry to inform you there is a potential treason about to occur by a fellow EU airline. Your darling plane maker, Airbus, maker of your A340, is about to be traded in for a bin liner. How can this be? It must be against the EU laws to buy a Boeing. It must be due to the extra hair dryers that you have hanging off the wings of your 340, converting all that Jet A into chemtrails. Well, we get Jet A1 over here. We're not cheapskates. <laughs> uh, they're almost looking as aged as the old mad dog. No, they're not cheeky men. They're only a few years old. The Jet mm. has been flying since World War II. <laughs> <laughs> Not nearly as efficient as they once seemed before the old 777 made them look bad. Check out this article. Maybe you can give those crazy Germans talking to set them straight on the Boeing versus Airbus debate. As for me, I'll fly on either one, Boeing, Airbus, as long as it's not being operated by one of those cheapskate outfits that are neglecting maintenance. <clears throat> and he mentions three airlines, which I won't because I don't want to be sued. <laughs> Good. Um, Northrop still has my heart with the F-14, but I guess the F-18 is all right since the Blue Angels make them look pretty nice in their blue and yellow livery. I prefer them in tactical grey myself. Have a great day and keep the show rolling into my podcast app. It helps with my rare, untreatable medical condition, Q, APG syndrome. APG syndrome. Well, you can always try the uh, treatment, Brett, and that was from Brett Seymour from Huntsville. A oh, no, don't tell me, don't tell me. Uh, um, Aloisha, Alo mm, really close, uh, yeah, really close. Um, uh, Alaska, Alaska, Alabama, Alabama. Alabama. Oh, Alabama. Alabama. Okay, fair enough. Aviation nerd in the Rocket City. Now, the, what he's referring to is an article uh, that Buf Lufthansa is giving Boeing a shot at a new wide-body deal. And it looks like uh, Lufthansa is considering placing some of its uh, 340s. Um, and uh, what it wants to do is to consider replacing them with, um, uh, I don't know, Dreamliners, I guess. And uh, it appears that uh, uh, Boeing might be taking the A340s off their hand uh, hands in order to uh, sell them seven eight seven. So um, yeah, uh, I can see uh, why Boeing would want to do that, and I think uh, Airbus actually are one of the bigger biggest leases of Boeing's because they do exactly the same. They they take Boeing's off people's hands in order to sell them new Airbuses. So just a thing that these boys do. Um, yeah, sadly, the A340s are coming off a lot of people's books. They've uh, four-engine airplanes, as we discussed last week on the 380, whether they be 
passenger 747s or uh, uh, you know 340s or 380s there. They're quietly being shelved in uh, in preference for uh, less expensive, cheaper to run uh, twins. So an inevitable change, I'm afraid, considering the cost of fuel nowadays. Mm-hmm. I got the um, guy that wrote this article, um, or actually quoting George Dimitrov, head of valuations for Flight Ascend Consultancy. Uh, it's kind of a harsh quote. Uh, that's literally the only limited demand we can see for that aircraft and trading prices are all in the single digits, millions of dollars. If you tear it down, some parts have value. A lot of the airframe parts are common with the A330. Uh, but, you know, we talked about this on the previous episode, you know, four engine airplanes are, you know, they're, they just don't make any sense anymore. Yeah, apparently. they're expensive. Those yeah. engines are a vast cost. And when you've got a yeah. Have twice as many on a four-engine one, you don't really want to have to have that doubled-up cost of maintenance and uh, installing all the, the things that go along with uh, running these uh, jet engines. So, yeah. That that 340-600 uh, is is one of the prettiest airplanes out there, I think, flying. Yeah, honestly. true. I Thank you. Uh, and I and I uh, love flying it. So it is sad to see it go. But then again, I'm going soon. So, you know, we'll go together. Oh, that's so sentimental. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I was going to look for something to play like. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes my heart feel so good. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll come up with something more suitable. A little, uh, uh, in post. Uh, anyway, um, thank you, Brett, for that. I'm and not thanking Brett. I know you're not. Mean man. <laughs> It was a fine reading of the feedback, though. It was. It was. Thank Thank you, you, Nick. Um, George, you know, George Nolly, he is the host of Ready for Takeoff podcast. And he has uh, sent us feedback in the past regarding these um, more and more. um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Air events. Yeah. Well, you know, the the air, they seem to be coming up more and more uh, recently. And uh, he um, sent a link to an article from the San Francisco CBSlocal.com site. Uh, study uh, shows that toxic air events happening on more flights than the FAA reports. And uh, it's, the article starts off by saying it's an open secret in the airline industry. A flawed design in almost all airplanes is putting flight attendants and pilots at risk. And passengers can unknowingly become victim victims as well. And it talks about this um, aerotoxic uh, syndrome that we've talked about before on the show. And essentially, it's you know the jet engines uh, have lubricants, and these uh, these lubricants, these oils, this turbine engine and accessory oil uh, contains something called organophosphates. And uh, if organophosphates are actually uh, burned and uh, they somehow get through like a leaky seal and end up in the pneumatic system and make it through the uh, air conditioning packs and such. Uh, they they are sent into the cabin and apparently some people are more susceptible to these organophosphates than others. And um, the, the thing that was is interesting about this, and we used to get it all the time in the 727 and we were always told that if you smelled something that smelled like a dirty sock, that it was the um, 
the uh, the water separator in the uh, air conditioning pack units. And uh, if they if we ever mentioned, yeah, we're getting that dirty sock smell, they'd say, oh, we'll go ahead and replace the uh, the the separator or whatever. Coalesce bag. Yeah. And and then we all we all went, oh, OK, that makes sense. <laughs> now I'm reading these these articles about aerotoxic syndrome and they said that these organophosphates, when they are um, heated up, um, they actually put off this odor that smells like a dirty sock. It's a neurotoxin. Yeah. What? Huh? It's what? a neurotoxin. What? Where am I? <laughs> <laughs> Who are you people? What yeah. are you doing in my here? house? No, no, you just woke up after <laughs> baggage compartment from Kansas City. Oh yeah, I'm waking up. Wow, it was a rough night last yeah. night. Where am I? But this yeah, so you... incident is the one we covered a while, but this isn't a, a different incident, or am I misunderstanding? I think I they're just covering incidents in yeah. general, correct? Yeah, well, when they say, and they, they don't have actually quoted any direct facts. They're just saying it's known and the industry believes and people say. So I don't know if there's any great new revelation in this. No, I think it's just a way of keeping this in the public's... Yeah. I noticed um, that these are all coming from George. Um, do you think George got a personal odor problem? <laughs> I'm just wondering if we, you know, I've not met him in person, but I think I've heard people say that he Ouch. smells like dirty socks. Ouch. Every time For, we get uh, mention of dirty socks, George is involved. That's all. That's all I'm saying. From the Airline Pilot Guy show to the Ready for Takeoff podcast, I would like to say that the views expressed by Captain Nick. Sorry, George. Sorry. I, I think that deserves it. Wow. <laughs> uh, let's see. At the very end of this um, is a text uh, to Alaska Airlines complete state. Okay. I guess this is a statement put out by Alaska Airlines. Um, as part of our ongoing commitment to safety, we work very closely with our employees, unions, and partners to immediately report, investigate, and solve any issues. Alaska speaks with our counterparts at Airbus and Boeing on a daily basis to ensure transparent communication and coordination as part of our regular check-ins. We have been in lockstep with Airbus to immediately investigate and resolve all reports of cabin odors. Of the recent cabin odor reports... Our maintenance and engineering team have found that the overwhelming majority of the reported smells have nothing to do with the aircraft. Odors can come from many different sources not related to the aircraft. And as a result, (laughs) maybe George, some of our pilots uh, don't wash their socks often enough, apparently. Uh, we've, We've taken immediate action to look into any possible sources by increasing inspections of cabin interiors, deep cleaning onboard food and beverage equipment, and instituting mandatory engine run after engine washes. Sounds like a cover up to Sounds me. Like we're saying nothing to see here. Move along. <laughs> yeah. Move along quickly. Yeah. The, the term is plausible deniability. Yes. Yes. We we pay attention to uh, radiation, so we have radiation monitors on some of our aircraft. Is it not possible to have an air uh, um, quality monitor that will detect this? To, to I'm sure out? organophosphates can be detected in parts per million or something. Exactly. So things. I'm just wondering if there's not some simple way to put these on the aircraft and uh, prove one way or other whether we're getting them on the air or not. That's a brilliant idea. Brilliant. 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 I can. <laughs> <laughs> <here>. Brilliant. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> that was perfect, actually. 
All right. Um, you know what? I think it's just about time for the best part of our show, which, of course, everybody knows is the old pilot's plain tales. And take it away, old pilot. The old pilot's plain tales in Flanders Fields. Waiting for hard-boiled eggs in the mess. They want us in the air immediately and send a Crosley to drive us to our planes. I'm angry because I didn't get breakfast. In the air, climbing southeastward as the sun breaks, we found the Hun, but he saw us coming and retreated before we could get into range. Outrun by the faster German plane, we circled around and headed north. I climbed to 10,000 feet and came back around to see if the Hun had returned. He did, and we dived on him again, but this time Archie opened up and exposed the sneak attack before we even got close. The Hun gets away a second time. Frustrated, we fly further north, trying to find something to sneak up on. Finally, we see two LVGs 700 feet below us coming directly our way. Two-seaters are tricky, and in a pair, the rear gunners can be punishing. We swing to the east to isolate a single plane and make a side attack. As we swing wide, Archie traced our path, ruining our surprise. Suddenly, the Archie stops. I know what that means. I see a swarm of ten Hun scouts in the distance against the clouds. They're already firing from far away, must be inexperienced, and we dive towards our lines. The fighters were Albatross D3s, and they were gaining rapidly. Tracer fire is starting to zip over my shoulders. I look back a second time, and balls of white Archie open up right in front of them. Our Archie has come to the rescue. When we reach a thousand feet, the enemy planes have pulled off. We cloud hop to the east, getting deeper behind enemy lines, and find another DFW right below us. My wingman and I dive on him. He doesn't see us, so I'm patient this time, waiting until I'm at two hundred feet. When the plane fills my oldest, I fire twenty rounds in short bursts. The startled rear gunner quickly turns and starts firing back at us fiercely. The DFW starts to dive, and I pursue him in an almost vertical dive. I try to keep firing, but my gun jams. I keep one hand on the joystick, controlling the dive, and grab the hammer from its leather strap with the other and start wailing on my vickers, trying to break it loose. Gun still jammed. I finally pull out. On my way back, with the sun up and massive cumulus cloud cover, I get a few minutes of joyous flying. My wingman and I dive and climb, exploring the dark crevices and vertical cliffs of the cloud cover. As I landed at Sea Flight Hangar, the flight commander waves me over and tells me to get my guns reloaded. They need me to fly an escort for a BE-2E, doing an emergency photo recce quite a way over enemy lines. They were going to leave in ten minutes. We follow the BE pilot to the front, flying at an uncomfortably low 5,000 feet. There was a lot of Archie. 
and I'm surprised the pilot makes no evasive manoeuvres at all, just calmly flies through the explosions. His indifference to the danger was a sign of someone who had become hardened to the risks and was just trying to complete his assignment. Almost 15 miles into German territory at low altitude, I constantly twist my head to the left and right, watching for the Hun. The BE pilot methodically completes his recon route, taking photographs while we circle overhead. As we head back home, I finally see what I expected all along, four albatross fighters to the east, catching up with us fast. I make ready for a fight, but I know we are done for. To my astonishment, the albatrosses do not level out, but dive right past us and do not come back. No idea why. As we approach the lines, Archie is punishing. It seems like half the Archie in France is pointed up at us. High explosive, shrapnel, flaming onions, the whole lot. The shells burst so close, it pushes my pup sideways and stings my eyes. The BE pilot continues to fly straight, unconcerned about the risks. As we cross the trenches at 4,000 feet, we're clear of the Archie and our escort is over. The B pilot and his gunner wave at us as they head back to their base to the north. We make it back to our aerodrome in fine spirits. What we didn't know is that the B pilot had been injured by the flak. He passed out on the way back to his aerodrome, lost control of his aeroplane, clipping the cables on one of our balloons. The airplane dove into the ground, killing the pilot, the gunner, and destroying the films. After having clapped up all my pilots from the remains of a greasy breakfast, we all walked down to the sheds. It was a glorious dawn, but no one took any notice of it. We were all far too bleak to speak to each other, except one Canadian who was hearty, as he always was on every possible occasion. Sometimes we all cursed him for it. On occasions, everyone was grateful to him for unveiling humour at times when none of us could see any. We ran up engines, taxied out and took off, and got formation over the aerodrome at about 1,500 feet. I led the patrol away from the lines, climbing hard, turned east again, struck the lines at about 9,000 feet, and started our patrol. When coming down south, I saw two two-seaters about five miles over Hunland. I had a look into the sun for scouts lurking high up, ready to pounce on us when we attacked the two-seaters, but all was clear. The rest of the formation closed up, having also seen the Huns. We worked our way east and into the sun, and when about 2,000 feet above them, we dived to attack. He saw me, swung round, and I found myself sitting on his tail, both my guns going hard, and the Hun observer firing hard at me. I found this rather too hot for my liking, so pulled away, just as another of my people came down like a stone onto the Hun. I looked towards the other Hun, and saw him going down east, with two camels hanging on to him like leeches. 
I took another look around, for in a fight, if a pilot does not look round, he may be leapt on any minute, and to my immense surprise, saw an albatross scout about two hundred feet below me, west of me, and flying towards me. I waited till he came to within a hundred yards of me, dived my machine steeply at him, pressed both gun controls, and waited till he passed through my telescopic sight. I must have ripped him open from front to back. I swung round, but I could not see him actually burst into flames, which is what occurred. Later I came down through the clouds, straight on top of a main road, with trees either side. Suddenly I met a convoy of about twenty grey lorries coming up the road towards me. Most of the lorries had open fronts, with two or three men on the front seats. We came straight for each other, head to head, when at about a hundred and twenty yards I opened fire with both my vicar's guns. The lorries stopped all in a hurry when the driver of the front lorry fell down in his seat. Men jumped from the backs of the lorries into the road, hesitated whether to run for it, lie down, or get back from whence they came. Sensible ones lay down pretending to be hit, Foolish ones ran for the ditch, presenting a good target as they ran, while the most foolish tried to clamber up into the lorries, presenting a glorious stationary target for my two vicar's guns. They must have had casualties, but to what extent it was impossible to say, as they all lay still, the shot and the survivors. Accompanied by Lieutenant von Helgesen, who was detailed as expert observer, I went up in my big monoplane and headed directly south, in the general direction of Paris. Previously on Sunday, we flew across Paris and dropped three bombs. One failed to explode, another dropped on the roof of a house and set fire to it, and a third fell on a boulevard and made a big hole. But we flew back to our lines in time without being molested, and we were so high the rifle fire didn't reach us. After flying for more than an hour, we passed directly over the English headquarters, and I was able to locate the positions of the commander-in-chief and his staff. When we then swept across the French positions, we paid special attention to the location of their artillery, much of which was massed in places of woods and behind buildings and hedges. The lieutenant made rough sketches of everything. I was intently watching the country when suddenly the lieutenant pressed my arm. He pointed upwards. There, coming at full speed directly towards us, is a big Bristol biplane. It was evident from the start that he was far speedier than we were. I tried to climb upwards, realising that when he got over me, he would drop a bomb and we would be blown to atoms. But the Bristol held me for speed and soon was directly over our heads. I was scared that the bomb was coming and I thought every minute was to us our last. I saw a flash alongside of me and thought... For a moment the end had come, but it was the lieutenant shooting with his automatic pistol, and they veered off. The plunging of the airplanes made accurate shooting difficult, although one shot struck my plane. It was very evident that the Englishman was shooting to disable our motor, and we were doing the same thing. The lieutenant again touched me and pointed thousands of feet higher, 
there coming at tremendous speed was a small Blériot monoplane. I felt certain now that the end was in sight, but the lightning kept firing in return as calmly as on the firing range. Suddenly, however, German troops appeared below us and they began firing at the enemy, and the Blériot and the Bristol, ammunition exhausted, sailed off to the south, not harmed. However, I would not want to go through such an experience again. Captain Baron Manfred von Richthofen failed to return from a flying raid on the Somme on April the 21st. According to the unanimous declarations of those accompanying him and the observations of various spectators on the ground, Captain von Richthofen pursued an enemy battle plane to the ground. He was at low altitude when apparently a defect in the motor forced him to land behind the enemy lines. As the landing was effected without mishap, there was hope that Captain von Richthofen was captured unhurt. Reuters' report of April 23rd, however, no longer leaves any doubt that Captain von Richthofen met his death. Since Captain von Richthofen was the pursuer, he cannot well have been hit by his opponent in the air. He appears rather to have fallen a victim to a chance hit from the ground. These stories remind me that, as we approach the 11th of November, it is the time of the year when I wear a bright red poppy of remembrance. The symbolism is one that stretches back to the Napoleonic Wars, when a writer of that time first noted how the poppies grew over the graves of soldiers, but it came into more prominence during the First World War from where today's tales originate. The poppies were the first flowers to grow over the churned earth and freshly turned earth of war graves, and on the 3rd of May 1915, they inspired the Canadian physician, Lieutenant Colonel John McRae, after witnessing the death of his friend and fellow soldier the day before, to write the poem, In Flanders Fields. In Flanders' fields the poppies blow, Between the crosses, row on row, That mark our place. And in the sky the larks, Still bravely singing fly, Scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, Felt dawn, saw sunset glow, Loved, and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from failing hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high, if ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. On January the 28th, 1918, John McRae himself died at the military hospital in Wimeru and was buried there 
with full military honours. Thank you. That gave me a little time to uh, wipe the tears off my face. You'll notice that he has not put himself back on the camera, though, for those of you I'm watching trying the YouTube to, video. though. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There are too many buttons and stuff to push up here. Mm-hmm. Anyway, wow. Uh, that music um, is so sad. And that uh, that poem, so touching. Yeah, the can- it's particularly um, important, I believe, to the people of Canada. And uh, they make a big thing of... Uh, uh, quoting that um, poem uh, each year to commemorate the uh, the dead Canadian uh, military, and um, I believe it's uh, even a required learning at school, which I think is rather touching. Um, and Mariana, uh, one of our most devoted listeners, uh, in particular, wanted to hear the poem, and it's just about the right time of year to have it because, of course. On the 11th of uh, this month, most countries will be having some form of remembrance for uh, their fallen in not just the First World War, but in every conflict. Fallen heroes. Absolutely. Every one of them. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing that, Nick, and uh, Mariana for suggesting the, the poem. No problem. All right. Well... I think we should uh, move on. How do you move on after that? Uh, by clicking on this and <laughs> hitting this button. Little regroup. Little regroup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. absolutely. We'll see me back way tomorrow. I do. <laughs> uh, we have some feedback from G-Man. Finally, some audio feedback. He keeps giving us such a bad time, especially me, for mispronouncing his name. So let's hear how he does it. Hello, Captain Jeff. Nick and Dana, the unstoppable Dr. Steph, and all the APG community. This is Glaucus Oliveira, the G-Man from Down Under, Sydney, Australia. I am, as promised, leaving some audio feedback for a change. You must be thinking at this stage, this is a funny Australian accent. I am, in fact, from Brazil, but have been living in the most beautiful country in the world for almost 16 years now. The audio lengths are truly embedded into my vocabulary. But the South American accent is something that will remain with me for the last of my days, I'm afraid. First and foremost, let me congratulate you for the absolutely fantastic podcast. I have been following you since episode 118, going back to as early as episode 30 for an extra fix. So I can safely say that I have the syndrome and I can happily report that it's incurable. Sorry, I'm Amy Hick, your dreads don't work. You were my company on my long commutes in the past, which changed to short and then long again. During that time, I was listening to you on every possible opportunity, sometimes even at one and a half speed to make sure I caught up. And when I finally did, I felt a massive sense of accomplishment, followed by another one almost as massive of emptiness. I now have to wait for another week for my fix. That's not fair. You are a true inspiration to me and to the whole community. Great examples of passion, competence, and collaboration. Anyone who had a minimum inclined to enjoy aviation will certainly be captured by a show. Captain Jeff's soothing voice, Captain Nick's humor and fantastic storytelling skills, Dr. Steph's minimal-an-hour can-do-anything attitude, and Captain Dana's determination and competence. And let's not forget my Rick, his attention to detail and extreme passion for what he does. We miss you, Mike. 
I have a lot to ask and will bug you with many questions and requests for assistance in the future. More on that later. So let me start with a simple technical and practical question. Early in the year, I was flying from Sydney's Kingsford Smith Airport to Narita, Tokyo, on a beautiful JAL 787-900. Sorry, Captain Nick, but apart from the troublesome Rolls-Royce engines, they are great pieces of machinery. Around two hours into the flight, we were on our northeast course at cruise altitude when I noticed a Qantas Boeing 737-800 heading southwest crossing our path right above us. The plane was so close that I could tell which windows had a shade down and which ones had a shade up. I was a bit surprised and a little worried, but nothing seemed to have changed in our course. So I relaxed and waited for the end of the flight to have a quick chat with the captain. Once we managed to negotiate a middle ground on our language barrier, I asked him if he knows the QF-737 plane crossing our path near Townsville, and he said he didn't see a thing. So my question is, do airline jets radars identify traffic around and advise the pilots of potential collision risks? Also, do you get notified by ATC when a plane crosses your path within a specific threshold, or you just don't have to worry about it? I can't thank you enough for the great job you do bringing the community together and offering so many hours of entertainment and valuable information. You have no idea on how much of an influence you had in my life and future goals. So keep up the great work and continue to inspire generations upon generations of future pilots and aviation lovers. We really appreciate what you do. It is a true representation of what is a labor of love. I must apologize for the quality of the audio and a bit of echo in the background. Unfortunately, I don't have the fancy equipment as you guys do. All the best, blue skies, tailwinds, and God bless. G-Man from Down Under, sign off. Cheers. Oh, but you could have pronounced your name again at the very end. Yes. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't quite get it. Didn't he say Glaucus? He purpose. <laughs> I really I, do. When he said at the very beginning. It sounded like Glaucus. Glaucus. Glaucus, which is what we've been saying. Hang, hang on. Hello, Captains Jeff, Nick, and Dana, the unstoppable Dr. Steph, and all the APG community. This is Glaucus Oliveira. Glaucus Oliveira. Okay. Well, I don't know. G-Man, but we're going to call you Glaucus. Um, thank you for taking the time uh, and effort to record the audio feedback. It's great to hear your voice. And, uh, and, and thank you for sending in that feedback. Um, oh, excuse me. I'm, I'm, uh, celebrating with the celebration. Ooh, you found celebration that. already? Celebration. Wow. Yeah. I was in the, uh, total wine think- store, uh, right before the show. And I saw it sitting there and I thought, I gotta get some I, of I that. think Dr. Steph is suffering from a little jealousy there. That's <laughs> well, well, you know, she's closer to the, I have uh, not step foot in sh- a, an establishment that sells alcohol for I don't know how long I need and to. she's much, much closer to the uh, place where this thing was probably brewed. I haven't looked at the label, Mills but River? I'm sure it it's Mills up River? in. Um, hmm? Does it say Mills River, North Carolina? Uh, I'll have to get my other glasses on oh, to see geez. that. All right. Hey, just, just hold it up to the camera. I'll be able to tell. I need Daniel? zero glasses so probably. far. Zero. Other than this glass that has my tea well, in it. I need Dana to not talk for a moment so I can look at this label. Okay. This is okay. highly important stuff. Oh, man. Hello. Hello. Up higher? Up higher? No. Okay. Hold up higher. Not the top of the bottom. The bottom of the bottom. Oh, my gosh. Look what you're doing, Steph. Look what you're making us do. interrupting. This precious time. 
on the show. It's a, oh, this is great. This is very helpful. Thank you, Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, Chico, California, and, and Mills River, North Carolina. I know. They, I think they've they done put that both. I There's noticed you had to put your beer goggles on, Dorita. <laughs> <laughs> I had to put my progressive glasses on because. Oh, shut up. <laughs> That's hysterical. You know, I I could have read it if you had held the bottom of the bottle up to the. Oh, I'm sorry. Whatever. I probably could have read everything wrong. The bottle up to the camera to pour beer all over himself. I know, right? And all, all, all of his computer <laughs> too. He could, that would never happen. He could have pulled the Dana. That would never happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So what are you <laughs> what, celebrating? Dana or we've, we've forgotten what you're celebrating here in the conversation mm. about where the beer is actually produced. Um. I don't recall now. It was too long ago. Okay. <laughs> uh, I was I was having a little a celebra- uh, celebratory um, burp or something uh, Oops, yep. because I'd just taken a swig of this. Anyway, um, getting back to Glaucus, G-Man, um, and his question regarding the um, uh, the incident where he saw an airplane passing by and then he queried the captain after they got on the ground and said, you know, did you see that guy? And and the, the captain says, nope, didn't see him. And uh, that actually happens quite often on our flights. You know, we'll, somebody will get out the airplane and go, well, I'm going to report you to the FAA for that near miss. Excuse me? <laughs> what, what are you what are you talking about? And sometimes, you know, if you're looking out the window and we might be in a turn or something like that, or even if we're not in a turn, airplanes that are you know, flying overhead or right below us sometimes look like they're a lot closer than they are, but actually they can be like a thousand feet um, vertical separation from us. And that, when you think about it, a thousand feet, a thousand is feet not is a not lot very of, far. And no. the larger the aircraft is, the closer it appears. And we do have systems, the TCAS system that uh, lets us know when there are airplanes within our vicinity. And as long as they're within a thousand or 2000 feet, depending on how you have your TCAS system set up, I think it goes 1700 up and 1700 down. So if it's within a thousand feet, usually, or if you, depending on the settings, uh, sometimes all the way down to 8,700 feet below or 8,700 feet above, we'll see them on our display. But, uh, and, and as far as air traffic control, is concerned. I don't know what their requirements are to call out the traffic. Sometimes they call out the traffic and sometimes they don't. But if it's not going to be a factor and everybody's safely separated by the vertical spacing, uh, some a lot of times we don't hear them even telling us about the traffic because they really don't need to. All right. So with the TCAS system, it is a um, system that's going to alert you of a threat. So if an aircraft is not a threat, you will you can see it. Um, we tend to call it the metal detector or the fish finder, right? So if the aircraft's a threat, like it's climbing towards us or descending towards us or coming towards us in either one of those configurations, then it may give us an alert, right? But if an aircraft is passing below us or above us and we're in level level cruise, it's not going to let us know. Now, if, if it's a threat as far as air traffic control views it as a threat or that we need to know about it, they'll let us know. But normally, yep. an aircraft that a passenger can see, probably we're not going to see it, especially if they're crossing from behind or from the left to right, right to left. Uh, we're generally not going to know it, know about it. There's thousands and thousands of airplanes in the sky at any given time, and we all intersect. So 
if imagine how many calls it would have to be for every aircraft that's airborne that we, you know, in our vicinity that they'd have to call out. So if it's not a threat or something that we have to know about, I don't think air traffic control, I don't know, as Jeff said, I don't know what the parameters are, but I would imagine that if it's a threat or something that we need to be aware of, they'll let us know. And our TCAS system is not going to give us any type of warning uh, other than a, a white dot that gives the altitude and relative position to us. And it really depends on the mode that we have selected on our TCAS. Right. So we can have above, we can have below, or we can have normal. Right. And at, at cruise, I tend to have uh, below. In descending, I have below. Climbing, I have above. Yeah. So, in, in, and so I'm looking at those things because I'm looking at the possible threats. I'm not looking mm-hmm. at every airplane around me. And uh, I think I mis- uh, misstated something. It's 2,700 in the normal mode. And then if you do above or below, as Dana said, then it shoots up 8,700 8, feet or 8,700 feet below. At least that's the way ours are configured anyway. And it's probably worth pointing out um, for those who are not familiar that 1,000 feet of separation in reduced vertical um, uh, RVSM. Yep, RVSM separation minima. I was just trying to make sure I got the uh, the acronym correct there is perfectly legal. It's, but that's yeah. fine. That's what's ex- Yeah. What? And anyway, how can you guys see all these airplanes with the newspapers? You got stuck up in the room. They don't even have their. their... <laughs> I, was say, I don't know what you're talking about. Not, not, the, not the pilots, but just the, <laughs> the passengers. The passengers. Forget the, forget the pilots. The passengers don't have their window shades open either. So, yeah. Well, obviously, uh, Glaucus does. Glaucus does. And we applaud you for that. Yes, thank you for that. Thank you, thank you for person in the airplane looking out. And everyone else is going, I can't see my movie. <laughs> Down that window shade. shade. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. But by the time he runs up to the cockpit, knocks on the door, tells a flight attendant that we have a potential threat, it'd be kind of late. Yeah, I don't think he did that, though. No, but. Yeah. But, you know, I'm sure you've you've experienced the same thing. It's like. Yeah, that airplane was pretty close there. There you go. Um, what airplane? <laughs> what airplane? Like, Where was that? You mean a thousand <laughs> or, feet away? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That one uh, and like the thousand others that you didn't see during this flight? You know, I'd be right. very, very interested to know. I mean, and, and there's probably no way to know this, but when prior to that, we had RVSM, when we had a 2,000 foot separation requirement. Passengers probably didn't notice it as much as they do now because our, our vertical separation is far less. Mm-hmm. Although I do remember it before the uh, the, the tighter uh, vertical separation. Um, it's just, you know, something that if you just happen to be looking outside at the right moment, you might see another airplane crossing the paths. And uh, I'll tell you uh, what, if you look out your window on any given flight, especially here in North America, they're going to see it all the time. Yeah. Yeah, they're all, all over the place out there. All and that's why place. we love our ATC folks, because they keep us all separated. That's right. Hopefully. Yeah, that's what we're hoping. You're joking. Oh. They spend most of their time sticking us all in the same place. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah, what's wrong with them? Okay. Let's uh, move on to item six. This is a good one. 
Uh, Tim sent this in, thought this might interest you. Uh, the reporter, of course, doesn't realize that he may be referring to his EFB, which stands for Electronic Flight Bag. And this is an article from KCBS Radio. And uh, let's see, a, a United Express pilot flying from San Francisco to Burbank stunned passengers on Saturday when he said that the flight would be delayed while he returned home to get his iPad. Traveler Sean Kafferke of Burlingame said the pilot announced over the intercom that he needed 30 minutes to leave the airport and retrieve his tablet, which contained charts and important information essential to the flight. The pilot said that there were no alternate alternate devices at the airport, according to this passenger. Uh, the passenger said, you were waiting for the punchline, but there was none. It was just, he was gone. All the, although the situation was odd, Kafferke said he appreciated the pilot's forthright explanation. He said, I prefer the candor. Uh, I made it kind of, uh, it made it kind of funny or else it would be my flight was delayed because of something. Those liars. Another flyer tweeted about the pilot's unexpected detour. SkyWest, which operated the flight for United Express, declined to answer KCBS Radio's inquiries. Okay, so as Tim says, uh, I'm sure that he was talking about his iPad, but that is also his electronic flight bag. And I'm kind of not sure of this uh, situation, if it was absolutely necessary for him to actually go home and delay the flight for 30 minutes. Um because I don't know if uh, SkyWest has a base in San Francisco, but I, Dana and I know that uh, at Acme, if we uh, happen to uh, you know like misplace our EFB or iPad, uh, if we're at a uh, Acme base and we have them all over the country, um, the um, there is a system that we can actually get a replacement device, and even if we're at an outstation that you know is not a hub and there aren't um, extra devices about, uh, we can all there are also uh, ways for us to uh, get the appropriate charts um, and other data that we need for uh, accomplishing the flight until we get back to a base where we can get one of these loaners or. Uh, you know, whatever extra iPads, uh, and we can you know have the station print out the, uh, uh, the 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 approach plates and arrival procedures and all that kind of stuff. So I'm not sure um, what was happening here in this situation. If the pilot that made the PA didn't know that the, that was an al alternative plan, or perhaps they don't have that capability uh, at SkyWest. I, I don't know. Uh, not sure. But we do have uh, procedures in place to uh, take care of these kind of situations. And I think that I don't know for sure, but I believe that even if you can't get any of those things, as long as there's one operable electronic flight bag on the uh, on the in the cockpit um, that they would allow like a one time flight to get to where you can go to find a replacement device. But I don't know, you know, for sure that's true. I mean, it just seems like there would be some sort of contingency because yeah. electronic devices break, stop working, have software issues, glitches, things happen. Catch fire. We have these uh, vending machine. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll delete that. We'll edit that. Out. <laughs> um, we have these uh, vending machines at uh, the uh, pilot bases at uh, Acme Airlines where you can go in and I've not it used one. It dispenses an iPad? dispenses an iPad with all the stuff that you need for, you know, whatever you're doing. You have to on, swipe on, your credit card. Yeah, probably. 
give the give the uh, put your ID in there, and then mm-hmm. you can't get your ID back until you return that. find your iPad. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, I don't know how it works actually, but um, and I hope not to find out. Um, I know that was bad grammar. Sorry. Um, anything else to say about the uh, the United Express pilot for getting his iPad? I'm just impressed. It only took him 30 minutes to retrieve the iPad. Must live close like, to the airport. Right around the corner. Yeah. It seems like it would take about 30 minutes just to get off just to get the to airport car. property. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he had somebody delivering it to him or something. Possibly, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that we don't uh, push these items to yet another episode. Uh, we've already done that with uh, items number eight and nine. So let's go ahead and skip seven for now. And then hopefully if we have time, we'll go back to it. So uh, number eight, Dave, um, Amenta, uh, sent us some audio feedback. Hey, Jeff and the APG crew. This is Dave. I've been on board since APG 284, Flying on Ecstasy. I just had a quick question today. One of my friends recently flew an Alaska Airlines 737-900 into LAX, and he told me after his flight that he heard the autopilot disconnect sound probably less than 10 seconds after takeoff, as well as 10 or 15 seconds prior to landing. Now, I fly the 737 in the simulator at home a lot, and so he's familiar with the autopilot disconnect sounds, and I went through with him to make sure that that it was actually that sound. And I was just wondering if any of you guys could come up with a reason why it would ever be safe or appropriate to either have the autopilot in for takeoff and then remove it quickly after takeoff, which I don't even think is possible in the 737. But more importantly, uh, taking the autopilot out just before the flare. Uh, when I checked the, the METAR that day, they had ceilings of at least a 1,000 feet. So there is no reason for them to be doing anything like that as far as I can tell. But I, I just thought it was really strange, and I expect Alaska Airlines is a safe operator. So I just figured I'd ask you guys and see if you had any ideas. Thanks for all the APG. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. And I have to admonish you, though, um, don't fly on ecstasy, okay? That's not <laughs> against official APG medical advice. Yeah. yeah. Wait. Oh, wait a minute. No, wait. He was referring to the title of that episode. Yes. Oh, yes. okay. Sorry. <laughs> Honestly, though, when I first heard him say it, I went, what? what he's flying on ecstasy um yeah so so occasionally on at least the airplane that dana and i fly especially it seems like on the ground you'll be taxiing in and all of a sudden out of nowhere the thing goes autopilot autopilot you know, like the autopilot disconnect uh, alert and you're yeah. going what i had that Why last it- had that last week pulling into the gate i'm like okay i'm glad the autopilot got me all the way to the gate <laughs> <laughs> it landed the airplane. It taxied the airplane all the way to the gate, exactly. and then it disconnected. Yeah, uh, yeah. I didn't realize it was on the whole time. It wasn't on. And uh, sometimes you get these spurious uh, warnings for some reason. And, and now I guess it's possible that perhaps they. Uh, you're right. We don't. Uh, I don't think any airplane um, flies or does a takeoff with the autopilot on. Not that I know of, anyway. Um, so it's possible maybe that somebody accidentally hit the autopilot on switch shortly after liftoff and then disconnected it, or it may have been one of those spurious warnings that just come from nowhere. But as far as the 10 to 15 seconds before touchdown, I could see that that would be something that uh, you might commonly hear when you're flying into a place and people love to leave the automation on all, all the way down to almost touchdown and then they click it off. Um, I don't know. What do you all think? It, it sounds like he's on an international airplane. 
they click it off yeah. and land it <laughs> pretty much. No, but you know, seriously, I mean, uh, it, 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 if you think 10 to 15 seconds, maybe in 20 seconds, uh, you probably come right down to minimums and clicking the autopilot off. Yeah. Um, and that's actually a normal occurrence depending on the level of experience, like the gentleman I just flew with last week, he's a fantastic pilot. He can fly the living jeebus off the airplane, but he tended to fly the airplane with the autopilot on right down to minimum. You'll have to, you'll have to Google that. What? Bejeebus? The living big, big Jesus or whatever you just said. <laughs> yeah. Bejeebus. He can fly the living, you know, whatever. But anyway, so, you know, I encouraged him when we were actually doing a couple other legs to just go ahead and click it all off and fly the airplane. Um, because that's what we get paid to do and it's part of the job and it's actually kind of fun. So, you know, but there are a lot of guys that fly these automated airplanes that choose to fly the automation right down to at least close to minimums or, you know, it's all perception. I mean, it could have been 500 feet, could have been 300 feet. It could have been any, anywhere around there. It could have been a thousand feet. We don't know um, because people have different perceptions as to when it's actually being clicked off, but it, no, it's not uncommon to hear it because it's actually pretty loud. Just like if we had, we talked about it earlier, go around, you know, wind shear ahead, wind shear ahead, you know, go around. Um, that's pretty loud. That's something you probably would hear in first uh, rows of first class, even maybe into the first couple rows of coach. So, um, it's not uncommon to hear that. I would say that uh, 20 to 30 years ago, it would be very uncommon to hear it. But now in today's world, uh, it's probably very common to hear it that close to a uh, touchdown. A sign of the times. Yep. I mean, and, 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 and don't quote me wrong, Nick, you, you guys, you don't fly a whole lot of visuals. You prefer to fly the ILS, correct? Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, yeah, but um, we're mainly coupled. flying the yeah, ILS. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, but, you know. Do you have the ILS up when you're flying a visual? Yeah, we sure do. If, yeah. if well, the airport has a visual. What's your point? I mean, what's your ILS. point? Hey, what's, come on. Come on. I think, I think what point? he meant to say what's was point? that you probably are more likely on long haul to keep the automation on longer than. Uh, again, though, I don't know if that's even true anymore. I think that that's it's it, kind of it like a common been thing in, uh, in days past when yeah. uh, the automation was uh, considered king. But obviously, since incidents that have occurred, which uh, have shown that pilots, uh, particularly on uh, long haul flights, who don't get a lot of sectors, are losing uh, some flying skills. Now, we're very much encouraged to manually fly the airplane as much as possible. Uh, having said that. You can, uh, in the Airbus, you can put the, uh, or my Airbus, you can put the autopilot in five seconds after takeoff or 100 feet above the ground um, if you wanted to. Well, I don't. I usually put it in at about 5,000 feet. Um, and um, uh, if it didn't go in and it clicked straight out again, then it might give you a warning if the uh, parameter wasn't quite right or you hadn't let go, go of the stick properly and we're still putting inputs in when you hit the button that might cause that connection and then immediately a disconnection and uh, on the approach uh, 160 feet is the minimum for a cat one but that's not an autopilot capability that's the fact that the cat one guidance shouldn't be trusted below 160 feet is the official airbus limitation uh if you got a cat three pardon me of course you don't bother taking it out you can leave it in all the way down yeah but uh, uh yeah, I, I'm trying desperately to get Dana to lose this 
this bias, this myth he has gained <laughs> over the years that that uh, we rely on automation. So stop it. We don't. <laughs> well, Nick definitely now, doesn't boys. perpetuate any myths about, you know, aircraft types or I don't know. Well, but, you know, yeah. let's face it, like the 737 guys that they're talking about here, you know, might be, might have been their fifth leg, the leg of the day. You guys have how many legs a day? Well, yeah, we, but, we, we fly one long. leg a day. It's a very long one. It's yeah. a very long one. Okay. Okay. Let. Okay. Time out. Let's <laughs> let's play this next piece of audio first uh, before we continue our uh, you know jabbering or whatever you want to call it. We're not jabbering. Uh, we love each um, other. Yeah, I know. Um, but it also ties in with kind of what we're talking about here: uh, manual versus auto flight, etc. So uh, let's play this from Michael. Hello, Captain Jeff. This is Mike Lee McGall from Michigan. And just wanted to leave some audio feedback and a couple of questions that I've had that have been uh, kicking around in my mind for a while. I think that he thinks he's sending this into Opposing Bases podcast uh, <laughs> because Mike Lee McGolf. Yeah, I noticed oh. that, yeah. Okay, yeah, you can use your real name here. Okay, yeah, hang on. Mind. All right. First of all, I want to thank you, Captain Nick, Captain Dana, Dr. Steph, the whole APG crew. For all the work you're doing and all the time you're spending to put on this great podcast, I really enjoy it. Thanks so much for that. But now to the questions. First of all, when you guys as commercial pilots flying jets are vectored to the final approach, uh, the controller has now told you to maintain a certain heading and altitude to intercept the localizer, and then you're cleared for a visual approach. You're flying IFR, but let's say you're cleared for the visual for runway so-and-so. At that point, do you start flying the aircraft manually, or do you leave it on autopilot and allow the autopilot using the uh, the ILS uh, to guide the plane down to uh, pretty close to the airport before you take over manually? Always wondered about that because I've seen videos on YouTube uh, where it seems like a lot of pilots – uh, disengage the autopilot quite early and fly uh, actually for miles uh, from a thousand feet or higher manually uh, to land. Just wondered if it has something to do with the workload in the cockpit or if you as individual pilots just have preferences as to when to disengage the autopilot. Is there a certain time period? And of course, I'm referring to non IMC conditions when you can land visually. Uh, without having to worry about, uh, you know, using the ILS uh, just to get down to minimums. So that was one question. Uh, at what point, what altitude, how far out do you guys uh, disengage and fly manual? The other thing has to do with auto brakes. Uh, how frequently and under what conditions do you use auto braking at all? Is that something that's used frequently or only on uh, wet runways? Or uh, I've just wondered about that. Because uh, when I fly my Boeing 757 in, sorry, Captain Nick, British Airways livery, uh, I usually always engage the auto brakes. And um, I do fly GPS and ILS approaches with that thing. But uh, the sim uh, is a whole different animal, of course. So just wondered about that in real life, what you guys do. Again, thanks for the podcast and looking forward, if you can, to respond to my questions. Thanks a lot. And uh, I guess frequency change has been approved. 
And so I'll say goodbye. Take care. Thank you. Um, Yeah, Michael. Great, great questions. And I think a lot of people. Was that from his recording? <laughs> I, don't know, it was, it was, I don't think it was any of us. We I was looking at everybody on, on the crew going, who the heck yeah, did that? My if chair. anyone knows Mike Lima Golf, can you please go check on him and make sure he has <laughs> I would like for him to hear it, our, our answers to it. I think now if you're host, right that landing. If your host had uh, done a better job of cleaning up that audio, I would have that stuff off. Oops, sorry. My, my bad. Um, so uh, great questions by Michael. And I think a lot of people have these same questions. And I think it's it's kind of confusing because we have like we have auto flight, manual flight. We have instrument approaches, visual approaches. But guess what? There's like a almost an infinite. Well, not even close to infinite, but there are a whole bunch of different combinations that we can use auto flight, manual flight and instrument approaches and visual approaches Um at various points. And it really depends on the pilot uh, as well. And it depends on, you know, if it's, as Dana said, it's leg number five of six that day, or you've just made a crossing of the Atlantic Ocean and you're tired and, you know, it's safer to leave everything connected for as long as possible. Uh, there's so many variables to answer this question, but basically I've seen it all. I've seen people on a on a visual approach using the autopilot and that kind of bugs me a little bit i'm thinking it's to me it's like easier for me and that's why i guess it bugs me to just fly the airplane than to try to manipulate manipulate the auto flight system to do what you want it to do i'm thinking well just just click it off and fly the airplane like changing the the heading and the yeah it's like that seems to me like it's harder than just like manipulating the controls i mean that maybe that's just me but i think that Everybody here on the crew kind of feels the same way about it. But um, there are also times when um, you know, as long as at least my, our company's policy is that uh, we can manually fly a category one approach as long as the visibility is at least 4000 RVR or three quarters of a mile or better. Now, will we do that? Probably not. I mean, if we're getting down to, you know, some serious IMC we're probably not going to do that. We're probably going to leave everything coupled up with the auto flight system until we are very close to minimums or right at minimums. And then we're going to click it off and or go around. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of variables, as I said. And uh, I don't know. Yeah, you can. I, I know that Captain Nick is one of those people who flies a very sophisticated airplane, an Airbus. But he's told us time and time again over the years that he likes to fly, hand fly the airplane. And believe it or not, it's an Airbus and he hand flies the airplane. And I think that Nick is probably not your, you know, your normal Airbus pilot, but it sounds to me from the statement that he just made just a few minutes ago that this seem is maybe it's changing and more and more people are, you know, hand flying the airplane in, in the appropriate uh, environments. Yeah, I don't think I'm unusual in my company for doing that. Um well, I, but I think that your uh, your company is doing great stuff. I don't think that that's common amongst all the other that, major airlines. That may out there. be a true statement. I yeah. I don't know, but um, I mean, I've had first officers, uh, uh, and the only reason I say that because I don't fly with captains. Um, uh, click out the uh, autopilot and the auto thrust and the flight directors at twenty thousand feet. Wow. And do a completely manual uh, approach, everything. That's even unusual for the airplane that Dana and I fly, yeah. the dinosaur. 
I know. I, and I find it, I mean, particularly into a busier field, I find that actually quite hard work because I'm doing like twice as much now. I'm doing all the work he would normally do, be doing because I'm setting up the FCU to put all the bugs where they oh, should be, all the smart captures, <laughs> et cetera, and working the damn radio and trying to monitor him. It's, it's, it really does put a lot of pressure on the other pilot if you elect to do that. But, yeah, you know, if it's, it's a nice day and uh, conditions suit it and he wants to practice, uh, fair enough. He wants to keep his skills honed, then I will just work a bit harder. Um, and I've had the others who um, – We'll leave everything coupled uh, until, you know, the last possible moment. They'll click out the autopilot and kick the drift off and land it. And I don't like pilots who do that. I really, really don't like pilots who do that because. And, and I think we all know that. Yeah. Yeah. They, with pilots who do Except that. Except for Dana. <laughs> 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 no, they, I, they, actually, they do, I absolutely 100% agree with Nick because you want to know what? If you fly the airplane, you say far more proficient than if you click the autopilot off at 300 feet and land the airplane, right? Yeah. So, and even for that day, you've you've given yourself no chance at all to test the wind, to feel what the airplane is going to do, uh, and get a measure for it. You've you've just got that last, you know, and basically you're doing kicking it off in the flare, more or less, uh, which is not good. So anyway, uh, that's my six pennies. Yeah, you know, uh, Dana, be, you, why don't you say what you're going to say, and then you need to take off because you need to go to a party or something. Yeah, my my friend's birthday is okay, fifty eighth birthday. Oh, you better hurry because yeah. you never know. He's, he's probably going to fall asleep like here before long. But anyways, <laughs> I'm actually waiting for Julie to get home so she can take me. Um, okay. Take me, take me. Yeah, we're not going there. <laughs> <laughs> not in that way, sir. <laughs> but anyways. The, the, the reality is, is, is it really depends on each individual situation. All right. So coming into a, a major airport like Atlanta, you probably tend to leave the automation on longer um, to line you up the runway. You have to be a little more precise. You have to be more precise with the, the heading, the airspeed, the whole nine yards. So I see a lot more people holding on to the automation a lot longer into someplace that's a, a major metropolitan area. Now, if you're landing in Syracuse or Rochester or any one of these smaller airports, uh, you know, click the automation off a lot earlier, hand fly the airplane, enjoy what you do for a living because, well, hey, listen, we all signed up to be pilots, right? We want to fly airplanes. We want to have a good time and enjoy it. So uh, I, th I think it, it, it goes well for the proficiency issue. And I, you know, I, I salute uh, Nick and, and any of those guys in his outfit on the uh, long haul that click everything off. Me personally, oh, speaking of. Julie's home. Yeah, Julie's home. <laughs> <laughs> Me personally, I mean, I tend to fly the airplane up to at least 15 to fifteen to 18,000 feet. It's my general uh, flight altitude I'll go to on the climb out. Generally speaking, coming down, I'll, I'll click it off uh, depending on the situation, anywhere from uh, 3,000 to about 10,000 feet. So um, it's, it's all a judgment call, but you know what? I signed up to be a pilot. I signed up to enjoy this uh, industry and, and, and be able to fly airplanes. And that's one of the things I truly enjoy about the airplane I fly. We click everything off and it's just an airplane. Um, so there's no, there's no steadfast rule other than the fact that at night at our company, we're required to brief up and fly an instrument approach if it's available. Yeah. May I, may I share an anecdote? Mm -hmm. You may. 
when, thank you, uh, when I was um, on my IOE on the L-1011 TriStar, and we were we were coming into Dallas-Fort Worth, and they sent us to the other side of the airport, landing on one of the, uh, I think it's one eights on the uh, west side, and um, going over the top of the airport, and we were in the descent, they were vectoring us for the downwind, the right downwind for one uh, eight right, I believe, and um, going through about 17, 18,000 feet, I just, you know, clicked everything off and I'm flying the airplane and, you know, turning the base and, you know, it was a visual approach and landed the thing. And I asked the uh, line check airman, I said, when do, uh, when do most pilots uh, click off the automation? They said, oh, about 500 feet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> went, oh, uh, because I just come off the 727. Now the 727 was a very manual airplane. I mean, we did have auto flight, but it was, you know, pretty rudimentary uh, compared to the TriStar. And, uh, and I, I just thought to myself, really? And especially after I'd flown it for quite a bit and, and realized what a great hand-flying airplane it was. I'm thinking, why wouldn't you want to fly this? It's such a wonderful airplane to hand-fly. But anyway, I, I digress. I just thought, I, I was just thinking when we were talking about this this particular uh, scenario of, you know, auto flight versus manual flight and all that kind of stuff, I thought, uh, I always think of that that uh, time and i felt like such an idiot when i said <laughs> you know when do we do this and you know, what are you showing there there so i'm i'm showing now that you can actually see it uh -huh. the uh one of the last stickers that uh, acme put out there it says end of an error and that is almost a true statement that it's a picture of me picture of an l1011 tristar <laughs> One of my favorite airplanes, Jeff, I, I know it's one of his favorite airplanes ever. Yeah. And that is, is that we have so far gone away from hand flying airplanes that we now need to refocus. And, and it's actually become more and more of a focus on the fact that we need to get out there and fly the airplane because we're losing that skill. We can manage the, the automation really well in most cases, but we need to fly the airplane. The yeah, we have to be proficient in all Absolutely. of it, manual flying and auto auto flying as well. No, I'm going to put a caveat on that. And yes. when I say that the majority of mishandling occurs at high level, and we don't hand fly the aircraft at high level most of the time, That's true. we're not permitted to fly the aircraft at high level. We do all our handling practice where the air is nice and thick. There's a lot of separation between uh, the barber's pole and the uh, stall speed and uh, it's an easy airplane to fly down there and that's uh, and it is does concern me that we are developing handling skills that aren't appropriate at thirty nine thousand feet when you're um, balancing a ball bearing on a needle uh, well, and uh, not only that we're not allowed to disconnect the autopilot in our vsms base and exactly. flying up yeah so you, you can't obtain those skills, but it's up there that most of the major handling errors uh, in recent years have been made. I heard sure. this story, and it wasn't me. It was uh, somebody that I that told me about somebody that they know. It was a friend of a friend. It was friend. a friend of a friend yeah. that <laughs> was flying an airplane that uh, the auto, both autopilots wouldn't engage. And they told me that they flew from Houston to Atlanta at 33,000 or whatever the appropriate altitude would be, east is on, west is even. So, uh, so like 33,000 feet to Atlanta. Um, and then after they landed in Atlanta, they thought to themselves, hmm, wait a minute. They weren't supposed <laughs> they to fly. They're not supposed to do that. 
290 yeah, and below. in RVSM uh, with and yeah. and uh, they told me that the airplane is as Nick just said is very different uh it's flying characteristics up at uh, up in that thin air I'm sure I'm sure it's yeah, kind of similar to you know um flying aircraft at different airspeeds so slow yeah. flight versus normal speeds yep. again I've not personally ever experienced that myself but um I've, that's what I've heard yeah, I mean, it's, it's like uh, I was chatting to a chap the other day and we were discussing what uh, they did in Opposing Base. I talked about there where they said, if you get an avoidance uh, instruction, um, and I not quite can't quite remember what the state's called, it's not quite the same. In other words, you're now getting a turn uh, because you're going to break minimum separation by air traffic. Um, do you do it? Do you hand fly it? Or do you use the autopilot to make that turn? And... Uh, the guy said, oh, I'd, I'd take the autopilot out and, you know, I put on a lot of bank and I'd pull. And I'm thinking, ah, you get away with that at lower levels, but up there at 39, 41,000 feet, if you get that turn called, <laughs> you, you're, you're going to put the airplane into a dreadful situation. Yes. If you whack on 45 degrees angular bank and start pulling, you're going to be straight into the stall. So, uh, and then you're going to hit the protections and all hell's going to break loose. So I think, uh, you know, people need to think hard about how you fly an airplane up there. Yes. On that note. All right. Good night, Dana. everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. It, was a, it was a middle C, wasn't it, that note? Yes. Middle C. Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> baby. All the best. Bye-bye. See ya. I see Have ya. a good time. So a question from the chat room, my two cents. Would I hand fly most of my landings? I think that's what it says. Yes, because there's really <laughs> only one aircraft that I fly with any sort of regular uh, frequency that has a good autopilot, and you still can't land with the autopilot in on that aircraft. It's not. No, not, no auto lands. No on auto the land on the Cirrus. Definitely not. Not yet, anyway. Not yet. I don't know that that would be a good thing to put in a small general aviation aircraft. Yeah, I mean, maybe not. You know, it's almost the same same thing. People who fly that aircraft regularly do a lot of flying with the autopilot on, and you can get the they can get themselves into the same situation where their hand flying skills become rusty. And now you uh, kind of mix it up a bit, so you're flying the Cirrus, yeah, and then, uh, and then like, you fly one seventy two. Yeah, yeah, I do both. Yeah, so that's good to keep your mm -hmm. your skills up that way. Absolutely. Um. And you don't have auto brakes on the Cirrus or the no. 172, no. do you? No, definitely That was not. the second part of Michael's question about uh, auto brakes. And again, it's really a good question because um, I think it really depends on the airplane that you fly. On, on the um, airplane that Dana and I fly, the Mad Dog, we do have auto brake systems, but they're it's pretty crude and it's not smooth in general. And... Uh, but the, we, there are times when, when we were, are required to have the auto brake system on for landing, and that would be in our Category 3 landing situation where the basically the uh, airplane lands itself, and then it also starts braking on its own. Of course, we still have to put the uh, engines into reverse thrust. Um, but um, I know that there are a lot of airplanes, probably, I would say most of the airplanes that we fly at ACME, I think it's just standard operating procedure to always arm the auto brake system on some kind of a setting for every landing. I don't know, Nick, you can tell us about uh, the airplane that you fly or your company. It, it, it probably depends on the airplane and it probably depends on the company and a combination of the two. 
Yeah, it does. Uh, the 600 has got a, like a, a, a setting of one, two, three, four, and uh, the 300 has got uh, low or medium. Um, but the, the reason we use that uh, all the time is so that we have a predictable landing distance because we do a landing distance calculation. In order to do that, you've got to tell it what braking setting you're going to do, and then it'll give you a landing distance. And the, the main reason is we will adjust our landing distance depending on, one, the runway length to make sure we have a really safe a landing distance and there's plenty of runway left of us. But sometimes, almost uh, as importantly, to hit the right turnoff because runway occupancy at a busy airport is very important for air traffic. Uh, and uh, if you don't get to taxi speed at the right turn off and able to turn off promptly. The guy behind you is going to go around. And you, the last thing you want to do is do that. So it's much harder to judge exactly how much manual braking to use to hit that turn off to get the aircraft slow down at the right rate. Whereas with a auto brake, which we know exactly how fast it would decelerate, sadly, we don't have the very sophisticated uh, brake to turn off system that Airbus have an available way you actually select which turn off you want to hit and the auto brake will vary and make sure you're at the right speed at the turn off you selected. Pretty clever. Uh, very clever and more importantly from a safety point of view if you have uh, allowed the aircraft to float and you're no longer going to safely uh, stop before the end of the runway it'll shout at you and tell you to go around which is actually when we're talking about all these overruns we've been getting uh, is, is a very uh, sophisticated and clever system and would prevent all that um, so yeah uh, we do use auto brake and primarily for efficiency rather than any other reason and in some airplanes, the auto braking system is really almost better than what we can do manually as far as applying the brakes smoothly uh, and and uh, symmetrically. Uh, because mm -hmm. think about it, you know, each each rudder pedal at the top, that's where we that's how we put the brakes on. We move our feet up to the top part of the rudder pedals and then we apply pressure to the top part of the rudder pedals. And uh, you it's know, if easy. You have one foot that's a little bit slower than the other. Yeah, or maybe there's a crosswind or something sure. like that. So you're trying yeah. to keep the uh, airplane going straight down the runway, and you don't even realize that you're applying more brake pressure on, you know, one side more than the other. And usually you don't know about it until you get to the gate, and you look at your your uh, brake temperatures, and one side is usually higher than the other side. And you go, oh, I guess I didn't mean to use so much brake on that side. But the nice thing about the auto braking system is that it applies pressure nice and symmetrically. And, um, but on my airplane, um, up, depending on whether it's an 88 or a 90, uh, it, uh, doesn't always smoothly, uh, sometimes it's pretty abrupt, uh, the, uh, the auto brakes. Stopping. Uh, yeah. We're stopping. Yeah. Funnily um, enough, if you want to stop in the shortest distance, uh, our figures indicate that a manual braking is the shortest stopping distance. Hmm. And, uh, they basically, as soon as you, uh, touch down, you just press as hard as, as you, hard as you can, can, max manual and, braking. Uh, you allow the um, um, the anti-lock system uh, to uh, prevent the wheels from skidding, and the aircraft will come to the halt in shortest possible distance. And that's usually calculated by uh, test pilots when they do theirs. Um, so yeah, sorry. You that's exactly the same um, the same scenario for the airplane that I fly. Excellent. Um, yeah. yeah, when you look at because we do have a system where we can put in 
landing distance calculations, touchdown no later than this point, and then they have all the diff- various auto braking levels, and then they also say, you know, the max manual braking, and that's always going to be the shortest distance. Yeah. Speaking of um, options available on aircraft, going back to general aviation aircraft and something we said at the beginning of the show, I know this is a little departure for the moment, but we talked about 172s not having electric trim. Apparently, if they have an autopilot installed, they can, just so no one feels like they have to write us. Wouldn't want you to get too lazy there. Nah, no. <laughs> well, every every 172 that I've ever flown in. I've just apparently yeah. never flown a relatively new 172. They're all like 1970-something and change vintage. Although, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, um, Robert, um, I don't know if he's still with us in the chat room or not. Oh, he was the one who um, mentioned it earlier. Yeah, so I, I think maybe the one that we rented to fly up to the um, Flight 93 Memorial, I think that did have electric trim. Um so and I think it had an autopilot. Mm-hmm. Auto I've pilot never flown system. a 172 that had an autopilot installed. So that's yeah, why so I maybe that did have electric. Unaware, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, anyway. it does. Because typically, and maybe always, the auto flight system uses the electric trim to fly. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So there you go. Well, I think we're over the three-hour mark. I do apologize for those of you who hate long shows, but. Uh, you know, every now and then we like to do one that extends beyond three hours. And uh, so uh, we do beg your pardon for that. And no, you're uh, supposed to say so tough. Yeah, tough. <laughs> deal with it. Yeah, deal with it. Go find another podcast that's only an hour long or something. There are plenty of them out there, by the yeah, way. Yeah, that's true. Probably better there, than this there one. There are good ones out there that are. Yeah, there are very good ones out there right at about an hour. Um, and uh, anyway. Uh, with that, we have several items in the Liz was very, very um, optimistic, as she always is, because I love optimistic people. We have a lot of uh, items left uh, re- remaining in our uh, feedback folder, which we'll just move to the next show. Anyway, check out the AirlinePilotGuy.com website. There's a lot of information about the crew, the community, the merchandise, the uh, coffee fund, uh, APG Live. Plane tales. You can uh, find all of Captain Nick's plane tale, at least the ones that I've put up there. <laughs> I think we're behind a couple episodes on the uh, plane tales, but uh, and also just a reminder, you can also um, download the plane tales as a separate standalone podcast as well. Information about all of that is on the website. Uh, we also have uh, apps for your iPhones and your Android phones on their respective app stores. And they're uh, ad-free, and they're free to download. Don't have to pay us a thing. And it's there for you and uh, for you to interact with the whole community thing. And we're also on social media. We are. You can head over to Twitter, twitter.com. You can find us using the handle at APG Crew. We're all there. You can find our individual uh, Twitter information pinned to the top of that page. Or if you are more of a Facebook person, head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Plenty of community action going on, interaction going on there, I should say. Uh, post um, articles related to aviation, ask questions, things get um, monitored there. And uh, it's a, sometimes they make them to our feedback and it's a good way for community members to be in touch with one another. We'll see you there. Yes. And we're also on Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. 
we plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1. Hotel India, one one Echo 1. And see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel. And... Until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day.